0: you <laughs> 1973, reports of a bizarre, chainsaw-wielding family began to filter out of Central Texas. Then, silence. For 20 long years, nothing further was heard. 1995. Prom night isn't turning out the way you expected. You find yourself on the wrong road at the wrong time. About to come face to face with a living nightmare. Welcome. My world. The silence is over. He's dead now. Madness has returned. I, I, I. Four stars, terrifying and brilliant. This is the best horror film of the 90s. Family values
1: have gone straight to hell.
0: Genuinely scary and sharply self satirical, Leatherface has a lot in common with the gender bending killer in The Silence of the Lambs. I want these people to know the meaning
1: of horror. You aren't scared? Have a look behind you. <laughs> it's
0: been a long night, boys. I could use a little action. The return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the show that covers horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. And I'm Devon Taylor.
3: And I'm Jessica Scott.
2: And I am very grateful to have you both with me today, because I'm going to be honest, man, I am feeling more than a little bit flummoxed trying to think about this movie. So in a franchise that is filled with up and downs like giant swings, huge misses, this one to me is like the greatest outlier of them all. We are here to talk about, it's either 1995 or 1997, depending on who you ask, the slasher, horror, comedy, satire, parody, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, or Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you're an OG. So, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. Um, I just rewatched it again for this show, like literally before sending the recording link to y'all, just to like get one more crack at it. So before we jump into like how the sausage gets made, or really in this case, like how it doesn't get made, because spoiler, the Sawyers aren't cannibals this time around let's talk about our initial impressions of this one so jessica you were the one that was like adamant about being on this show Mm -hmm. you're like toby hooper toby schmooper more like (laughs) this one's better than the original damn it is i think the exact quote uh it can't hold a candle to this one is how you put it um None of those things are true. No. Uh, you did not say anything. But maybe you feel that way. Why don't you talk about your uh, impressions of, initial impressions of this movie, like when you came to it and, you know, why it called to you?
3: Okay. Um, so first of all, <laughs> just to set the record straight, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre t- is one of my favorite horror movies and by far the best of the franchise, in my opinion, okay. just so mm-hmm. we're clear. Um, but. I had heard... I could have
2: sent a lot of hate your way. Yes, yes. I wanted to get ahead of that really fast. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Gotta be careful. yeah.
3: Um, I had heard for years and years how terrible this movie was. I always saw it in the video store and always skipped over it because I had heard it was awful and I thought I'll get to it one day. Um, When the new Texas Chainsaw movie came out on Netflix this year, I just did a full binge of the entire series, most of which I had not seen. And when I got to next generation it blew my mind how much fun it was and how smart it was and how much i enjoyed it it is by far my favorite sequel in the franchise and i kind of retroactively side-eyed every single person who told me how terrible Mm -hmm. this movie was and i'm part of my love for this movie is the gulf between how much shit people talk about this movie, and how good I thought it was. Mm-hmm. So, I'm kind of, I'm kind of flummoxed by its bad reputation. So that's why I wanted to be on here to kind of defend it and talk sure. about. Sure. Just, I think it's a really, really interesting, really smart movie. And again, I think it's the best sequel by far. So I wanted to be here mm-hmm. to say authoritatively, this is a good movie. Damn it.
2: Does it feel a little bit like a secret? Like when you're like, no, I really love this one, and. In- in other people don't get it like it's not something we're like you know like at this point like we can say that halloween 3 is pretty much properly rated like it went from being underrated and underappreciated to like all right slow your roll a little bit folks like this is not the virgin spring here it's a fun (laughs) little fun little like kind of like witchy gothy movie Uh, but this movie hasn't gotten that kind of reevaluation is that part of the appeal like where it's like hey i really enjoy this and others don't so it feels you know more like hey this belongs to me
3: i'm sure that's part of it like i i had the same experience when i saw season of the witch um mm-hmm. i had never heard anything but terrible things about it and when i saw it i loved it so i i definitely have an affection for movies that mm-hmm. i think are unfairly maligned um or Sometimes people miss the point. Like there are a Mm -hmm. lot of movies I love that people claim are so bad they're good, but I don't think they're using that phrase correctly because they're not Mm -hmm. bad at all. Um, So I think that's definitely part of it is that my poor little unloved redheaded stepchild of the franchise kind of it it does feel like it belongs to me a little bit, which is silly Mm -hmm. to say about a movie because there are a lot of people out there who love this movie. Sure. Um, But that's definitely part of the appeal, I think.
2: Mm hmm. I, I get what you're saying there. And Devon, how about yourself?
1: Yeah, so this was a uh, first-time watch for me. This is um, my mid-franchise check-in after um, the, the four-and-a-half-hour epic of mm-hmm. talking the original. And This uh, won't be that. <laughs>
2: this, you know, this won't be. Um, famous and, uh, last words.
1: So the this past weekend, I did a little mini-marathon of two, three, and four. Um, well, two, three in this one. And um, I was actually surprised on like honestly the I feel like the quality between these three sequels aren't uh, that vast. Um, I you know I thought two was two was pre- you know pretty good and uh, had it, I, I really enjoyed that one and then three it was like better than I expected it uh, really good first half, but then kind of falls apart uh, in the second half. And then this one, um, funny that Jessica mentioned, um, uh, man, why did I just uh Halloween three? The, yeah, season of the witch. You mentioned season of the witch, and mm-hmm. uh, it definitely was on my brain uh, whenever I was watching this. Um, I feel like uh Kim Hinkle had this on in the background. Uh, had <laughs> season of the witch on in the background while she was writing this. Had to have. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was kind of one of those things that like, I, uh, I, guess I don't watch uh, quote unquote, like bad movies or mm-hmm. quote unquote trash movies. And when I say that it's, it, I more mean that of just like, I know my taste pretty well. And like, whenever people describe a movie a certain way or a film is like, you know, described a certain way, uh, I can kind of, I'm pretty good at knowing like, you know, what it's not going to be for me. I can just go ahead and skip mm-hmm. it. If it is, uh, or or, like, I also don't watch, I guess, a ton of those, like, you know, like Jessica was saying, like, quote unquote, so bad it's good movies. Um, I just watch Red Letter Media for that. Um, You know, so I don't typically watch those movies either. Um, But then, yeah, so because being a completist for the franchise I had to watch this one and uh mm-hmm. it isn't like a so bad as good movie it's like it's a like the filmmaking quality is there um it has a yeah, i mean somewhat cohesive story it, it, it's uh, it, it has a beginning middle and end i'll say that um it, and it has you know um the the makings of a film um Mm -hmm. you know so i wouldn't even so it's like it's always hard for me to call movies terrible whenever it's like i kind of always think of like you know the filmmaking aspect you know in addition to everything else that's going on like you know because it's hard for me to say like a movie is bad unless it's like really bad on all fronts but like even as long as you at least cover the filmmaking bases i can't really call a movie terrible and so it's like i so i feel like it's unfair to call this movie like Mm -hmm. oh my god this movie is so bad but um, but also you know it's it's entertaining it does still have it, uh, i've noticed that you know throughout the sequels they kind of keep the dna of the first one but then with each sequel they kind of lose another piece of it um you know uh between the second and third film we kind of we lose uh, the cook and like you know that aspect of the family we get a completely new family and then we get a completely new family in this one again um and then Uh, This one kind of loses really most of the the, the violence of Leatherface. Uh, uh, Leatherface is portrayed in a completely different way. Um, And it kind of just becomes the Vilmer show versus, you know, it kind of being a balance between the Mm -hmm. family and Leatherface. So, um, you know, with each sequel, a little little part of the DNA is kind of lost and is made up for with something else. And sometimes that something else works. Sometimes that something else doesn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this movie, I will say at least uh, between two and three, um, you know, does uh, or or at least more than three tries to do um, something different. Uh, I felt like three was like a weird like copy and paste. You know, the second half was just like a copy and paste of the original film. Um, yeah. and then this one, I'll say, even though it is also kind of doing that a little bit, it does it, um, with its own flavor, its own gusto. Um, and it, I mean, it's entertaining. Um, and I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about here.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You just, you brought up three in comparison because we obviously, uh, listeners go back if you haven't already. And we just posted last week our, Episode on on Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre three, and I think like it was sometimes like a struggle to come up with things to talk about with that movie. And it's an enjoyable slasher. There are things like it's a fun late period slasher, but that's kind of all that it really is. And sometimes I find those like the most difficult movies to talk about because you know they're good they're a bit middle of the road and it's hard to, I don't have like a super strong opinion on it anymore. Like maybe I did when I first saw it and really enjoyed it. And I would say like one of the joys of doing the show is like, this was the entry that I was least looking forward to doing. Um, when we were kind of like mapping out, you know, what we're covering and, and, Even like yesterday when I sat down to like kind of take all of the notes that were in my head on the page, I'm like, this will be a quick outline. I can't imagine like if we get 60 minutes out of this, I'll be happy. And then the next thing I look up, I'm like eight pages later, I have all of these notes because like there's a ton to chew on. I think, with this movie. Um, and I, j- again, just finished re-watching it again, like, for the first time since doing my notes. And I'm like, I actually like this a lot more after, like, thinking about the movie and then watching it again. Like, yep, this is, like, hitting some, you know, this is kind of, like, tickling the intellectual bits of me a little bit, uh, as silly as it can be at times. Um, I would say that, like 20 years from this movie coming out, movies like Tucker and Dale versus Evil and Cabin in the Woods do what Kim Hinkle is going for better in the way that it kind of satirizes the horror movie and the way that it kind of like pokes at horror tropes in the expectations of fans. Like, I would say those are two movies that do what this does and what scream would do a couple years later i think they do a better job of it um it does wrestle with some really cool ideas about horror movies and fans and which direction the genre went in and what's interesting is kim hinkle like he co-wrote the first texas chainsaw massacre with toby hooper and then two decades later, he gets the chance to f- film like the third sequel in the series and gets to see where the genre went over two decades with the added benefit of like him not really being a big genre fan to begin with. Like he's not a ride or die horror fan. It just happened to be like it is for so many people. This is what he was able to do. Uh, you know, what jobs you could get hired for basically. Um, I do want to point out like there are zero chainsaw massacre deaths and there are zero chainsaw deaths in this movie.
1: So hardly
2: a massacre, Uh, more like a mild annoyance. Yeah.
1: I mean, there's, there's a lack of action in this one. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, You know, compared to the other ones, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it feels like, I don't know. Hinkle was kind of like, maybe like, okay, if I'm going to come back, I need to do something like kind of completely different. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I don't, it's interesting. Cause I don't really see a lot of any of the, the, the satire or commentary that they're, um, mm-hmm. kind of going for really, except for like the fact, like, it when it dawned on me like you know as barry's dialogue just like kept getting just like more deplorable mm-hmm. as, it, as it went on and then i was like okay this has to be just like yeah uh it, you know going out of their way to like do this because i was like that you know it, and and so like maybe with some of that i can kind of see it but like besides that like i don't really i don't know i was like i'm because i you know kind of saw that that uh, mm-hmm. uh satire was uh, talked about with this film and i just i didn't really see what was being satirized i just kind of saw this as more of a uh this felt just more of a like uh, a texas chainsaw movie but like i don't know almost more de palma-esque in a way okay um uh which is a i mean that more in tone more uh less than like the style or like mm-hmm. or the way that a de palma movie story unfolds in some of his films um, you know so I don't know I didn't, I didn't really this see too much of the stuff this will be the stuff. F- first and only podcast that ever relates
2: this movie to like the great Brian De Palma I think, I you think know it. They we know, are going to be a unique
1: <laughs> a of the highest order
3: I, I think of this movie as being what Texas Chainsaw 2 was billed to me as I had mm-hmm. always heard that yeah. Texas Chainsaw 2 yeah. was Toby Hooper kind of wrestling with the legacy of this movie and interrogating the movie i i hate texas chainsaw 2 i know i need mm. to rewatch it and revisit it but i did not enjoy it to me that's what next generation is it is mm-hmm. a conscious inversion of the first movie and it's yeah. all about digging into the legacy of that movie and how horror fans respond to it
0: like mm-hmm. this is
3: to me that's why it's such a smart movie that doesn't get enough credit because it's very consciously inverting all the plot elements, all the themes of the first movie and digging in and just dissecting the first movie and its legacy. And that's why I love it so much. Hmm.
2: I agree with that. I agree that this does a better job than Texas Chainsaw 2 does in terms of like interrogating the legacy of the first movie where I think Texas Chainsaw 2 is, is Hooper saying like, I really thought I made a comedy and people didn't find it funny. So I'm going to go so over the top that you can't help mm-hmm. but laugh. Um, so I don't know, necessarily think that he was trying to like look back on the legacy of the first movie. So much as like, I just want to make something ridiculous. Yeah. And something that you can only make when your body is composed of 38% cocaine. <laughs> I really think that that is kind of what was going on with that movie. I
1: I can, I could kind of see, I definitely agree with Jessica that, yeah, this definitely kind of is looking inward on the, the franchise. And, you know, it's like, I almost feel a degree of frustration uh, from Hinkle with like being like, okay, like, you know, like we've gotten to a point in the franchise where the family is, you know, so over the top now that they're overshadowing Leatherface and like, and that, you know, Leatherface has become almost the joke of the franchise, um, you know, which, you know, because as much as uh, I, I did feel like my, our, our sweet boy Leatherface was done a little dirty in this movie, but I also do like what they do with Leatherface in a, in a way also in um, the fact that like you know Leatherface really isn't uh, a threat at all like you know for uh, for most of the film like I mean in the first half we do see uh, him do a few chase scenes and you know throw people around a little bit but like you know by the time like you know when Vilmer comes around then it's just like Leatherface you know is just like yeah. a, a puddle is nothing at that point. Um, it, you know, so it, it, it is interesting and in seeing him being like, oh, like this is what, you know, Leatherface has become now, um, you know, with him away from the franchise. So it's like, I don't know if that, if he did kind of have that frustration, but like I kind of felt that a little bit because I felt that frustration in watching Leatherface like I'm um, being yeah. portrayed in this way. I, I have a take
2: on Leatherface and we get to the character and it kind of relates to the family that I have not read anywhere else and it kind of unlocked the movie for me and I think to your point too about Vilmer I just kind of wonder how much you know because this production seemed a little bit loose and we'll talk about it in a moment here but like when you're behind the camera and then you see someone like Matthew McConaughey who has like so much charisma. Like he a hundred percent understands the movie that he's in, and he's just like totally going for it. How much you're like, all right, you know what we need to do is kind of like shift our focus a little bit um to like whatever he wants to do, and like we don't, you know, need leatherface so much. I mean, McConaughey at one point burst into the room during the dinner scene and it's like all right all right all right and i'm like
0: we're coming off of right, like right, date
2: right. you know and i'm just like yes you know and you're like that is his dude like working for the city put a little change in his pocket like you know so it's like all right you do what you want to do and we're gonna let the cameras roll when you have someone like that who's so charismatic. Other things take a back seat. So let's talk a little bit about the behind the scenes here. There's like really one aspect of it that's really fascinating that we'll get to. But basically, Kim Henkel, he is approached to direct this movie and he agrees to do so, but he's very reluctant. Uh, Robert Kuhn, the producer, is really the driving force behind getting this movie made. Hinkle is on the record of saying he's not much of a fan of horror movies or the horror genre, but he was interested in becoming a director, just not this kind of movie. However, as the phrase goes, like beggars can't be choosers, and this is what is being offered to him, so he decides to take it. Um, Kuhn talks about, and he kind of talks about a little bit about how loose this movie was just putting it together and like f- kind of like how the funding and the crew came together. Um, Jessica, do you have the notes in front of you? Yes, I do. Could you read that quote from Kuhn about what he and Henkel wanted to do?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Kuhn says, I wanted to go back to the original and he, Kim Henkel did too. We agreed on that right off. And the first major thing was getting him to write the script. I raised the money to get it written and for us to start trying to put this thing together. Then we went out to the American film market in Los Angeles and talked to a bunch of people about financing. At that point, I'd raise some money, but not nearly enough to make the film, and we looked at the possibilities of making a deal with a distributor, but I knew there wasn't any hope of us making one we could live with. There never is. Kim would say, hey, so-and-so is interested, and it might be a deal we can live with. So we'd talk to him, and I'd ask three or four hard questions, and I'd just kind of look over at Kim, and he'd say, yeah. Then I'd go back and start trying to raise some more money. I just started going to everybody I knew and I got it in bits and pieces wherever I could.
2: Yeah. It kind of like speaks to the lackadaisical nature of like putting this one together. And I feel like that sometimes comes across on screen. Like it feels like this one, there's sometimes like a lack of urgency in some of the performances. Um, And it just feels a bit more kind of stripped down. And even Hinkle is like, I'll make it if you want me to, but he doesn't come to it with, like, this great sense of passion. Like, I really, like, this is the, you know, the third sequel of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the passion project that I've been waiting my whole career to do. Um, Mm -hmm. The cast does start to gather. A few of them had appeared in a little Disney zombie movie that was shot in the Austin area called My Boyfriend's Back, which was co-written by uh, Adam Marcus, who would go on to do Jason Goes to Hell, um, but we're seeing, like, the Austin film scene really start to, like, gain steam during this period. Uh, McConaughey and Renee Zellinger both appear in Richard Linkwater's, like, Dazed and Confused. Uh, McConaughey obviously has, like, a much larger role in that movie. I think Zellinger is more, like, a background player in a couple scenes. But she goes on to have, like, a nice supporting role in Love and a 45, which is kind of one of those, like, post- tarantino like early 90s edgy indie comedy dramas which i have like vague recollections of like seeing you know because i would have been one of those kids that were like sounds like a tarantino movie i have Mm -hmm. to rent this it'll be awesome there's There's only one point in tarantino (laughs) definitely not that um and but conaghy doesn't talk a lot about his time making this movie but he does relay in like 2021 he started to relay the story of like how he got the role so initially he had like a one-day role like he was going to be like a truck driver that rescues jenny at the end of the movie and like hinkle and company were like do you know anyone that could play the role of Vilmer? so mcconaughey suggests like two of his friends like oh you should let these two guys addition and he's like well gotta get back to my apartment like i'm all packed up and ready to move to los angeles and become a big movie star so he hits the road he's driving he's like wait a minute like why don't i play the role of vilmer because i would have like a lead role turns around and he asks to addition for the role they're like all right here's a spoon pretend you're stabbing somebody." And he auditions on the spot. He scares like the administrative assistant. Like she starts freaking out and they're like, "Uh, dude, you're hired. Like you have this role. So he like basically wins them over right on the spot. Um, The movies shot in August of 1993. They are back in Texas. Like it's the third of the four movies to be shot in Texas. We're not yet in the, let's go to Bulgaria (laughs) and shoot a movie in Texas. Um, But it is August 1993 in Texas, which, yikes, like just thinking of that, like I start turning up the air conditioner a little bit in my house, like that sounds miserable. Um, I feel like it's a
1: rite of passage that you mm -hmm. just have to profusely sweat through uh, (laughs) the filming of these films, you know? Yeah, And it's not as
2: bad as filming the first two movies were, or like... In the first movie, they have no money and absolutely zero regard for anyone's health or safety. And in the second movie, they're like, hey, what if we film in an asbestos laden <laughs> airline hangar and start blowing that air around so everybody gets sick and almost fucking dies? Mm, um, yeah, this one is more like it's just hot and miserable and there's a lot of stunt work. They would film mostly at night and then like go to like swimming holes during the day and the general mood sounds pretty chill on this set, although like there's a story of like um Renee Zellinger and Robert Jax, who plays Leatherface, basically three weeks in going to Hinkle and Kuhn and being like, we gotta ease up on some of the stunt work or spread it out because like we're getting physically we're getting beat to shit way too much. Mm-hmm. Um Hinkle doesn't hasn't directed anything yet, but he did earn some high praise from the cast and crew. Particularly about how the performances he was able to get out of some of the folks, which I guess makes sense when you think about like the big knock and Toby Hooper is he can set up shots amazingly well, but didn't necessarily give like the actors anything to work with. It was more about we got to get this shot. Um, so the crew or the cast really talked about enjoying working with Henkel. The only person he seemed to have a pro- problem with was like Tony Perinsky, who plays uh, Darla. And it was basically she's way too pretty. Um, What would happen was like they would film the scenes where Matthew McCohanahe is like stepping on her throat or beating the crap out of her. And she's supposed to look disheveled and beat up. And in between takes, she would like run to her makeup trailer, get dolled up again (laughs) and come back. And he's like, you're way too attractive right now. And she's like, well, you should put me into comedy then. And he's kind of like, I did. Don't you know what movie you're in? Um, this is the rare case where having a megastar hurts the movie. Usually you would get like, holy shit, we have two actors on the ascent right now. We're going to make a ton of money. Like, People are going to like want to see this. After filming the movie, they sell it to Columbia TriStar after it makes its debut at South by Southwest in 95. They get like 1.2 million from Columbia, and Columbia says, look, we're not only we're going to distribute this movie on a thousand screens, but we're going to give it a proper like marketing and advertising push as well. So they double what they they make double what they basically made the movie for. They're pretty excited because, like, this is going to be a pretty big movie for us. Like, people are going to see it. It gets, like, a very small release in, like, September 95. It plays on 30 screens. And they're like, we're just going to retool it a little bit. I think it gets a, like, home video release on Laserdisc in Japan. Um, But between that happening and tooling up for the 1,000-screen release... Renee Zellinger gets Renee gets cast opposite Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire. And Matthew McConaughey is cast as the lead along Sandra Bullock and Samuel L. Jackson in a period drama, A Time to Kill. And they're fine with it. Like, this is going to be great. Like, more eyeballs on the movie. They even start making posters, like, highlighting, like, look who we have in this movie. And then the agents of both mcconaughey and renee zelliger are like you were in what movie you were in the third sequel to the texas chainsaw massacre and okay well you know it's cool people like leatherface and what leatherface is a crossdresser in this one like what okay well oh they're not even cannibals like they eat pizza like is this a ninja turtle movie like what the fuck's going on here though like We can't let people see this movie. Like it will ruin your careers. So, CAA reps both of these performers, and they don't outright tell Columbia, but they heavily insinuate. Like, if you want Renee and Matthew to appear in more movies for your studio, you may want to rethink releasing this movie in any wide form um you know like it may come back to bite you in the ass basically so at that point columbia like they have to weigh their options like how much will this movie make versus like what we could potentially make off of these two in the future and they decide to like kind of like kill the movie like it gets a release but only in a handful of screens they don't market it at all um Henkel and and Kuhn are kind of like, can you sell it back to us at least so we can do something with it? And Columbia is like, nope, we can't do that either. Um, Devon, do you mind reading the quote here from
1: Kuhn? Robert Kuhn um, was saying that, well, we definitely feel that Columbia TriStar has not done what they agreed to do in terms of trying to market this film in the best possible fashion. They have not tried to exploit this film to momentarily benefit us all as they should have. They, should, uh, they just low-keyed it. They don't want to be guilty of exploiting Matthew because of their relationship with CAA, which is the strongest single force in Hollywood these days. You get on the wrong side of them, you're in trouble. So I understand their problems, but at the same time, they should have either given the film back to us or they should have done done the best release they could have done, and they haven't done that. Yeah, and
2: I think that's Kuhn speaking to to the Austin Chronicle in 1997, basically being like, look, we get it. And it wasn't like, you know, Renee Zelliger wasn't like, oh, you'll release this over my dead body, you have to kill it. Like, she was, like, cool with releasing it, and McConaughey was the same way. It was, like, basically their agency being like, nope, can't do this. They basically, like, Batgirl the movie before that would become a thing. Um, Can you think of any other time when like a horror movie had like a hot up-and-coming performer
1: and then like it was just killed off oh um i mean but was leprechaun kind of that way or did it J- jayla uh J- or did Jennifer Aniston not really kind of blow up until a little bit after that because that that'd be the only other one i can kind of think of because i know like uh leprechaun also kind of had that thing later that would kind of come up with this as far as like uh the dvd release like Mm -hmm. you know putting their name at the top of it and you know at at least in this one renee zellweger and matthew mcconaughey are like you know leads in the film versus Mm -hmm. uh uh, Aston. she is a you know like kind of a main character in leprechaun but she is kind of not in the film as much as they like started to advertise Mm -hmm. it and they would like you know put her name and her face like on the on the cover of it Leprechaun is ninety
2: three, Friends is ninety four.
1: Okay, so, I don't, so yeah, I, I'm not sure if like it if they mm-hmm. uh, kind of had a troubled release as far as like its initial release, but I know they did mm-hmm. like, kind of try to capitalize on it afterwards yeah. with the uh, the home release. Yeah, because I think
2: like Kevin Bacon and Friday the Thirteenth. Well, he would go on to blow up with like Footloose, mm-hmm. but that's a few years later, and it wasn't like. You know, they you know, couldn't release that movie. And it wasn't like, even when that came out, it wasn't like, oh, it's a Kevin Bacon movie. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis with Halloween. Like, it's really, her next batch of movies are The Fog and Halloween Two and Prom Night. You know, it's not until, like, trading places where she becomes, like, Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, I can't think of anything where someone, like, traded off the movie or the movie like traded off their fame and are like, come and see this. And, um, you know, before they were big type of deal.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure, but, um, you know, it, it is, it is unfortunate you know just for everyone else that like kind of uh, mm-hmm. works on it. Like those are always, you know, who I kind of feel for and, yeah this aspect and like you said it it, i feel like it would it would be very different if like you said like if one of those two stars that are ascending were like kind of had uh some sort of protest to it but the fact that both of them were also okay with it is like the the Mm -hmm. most puzzling part of it
2: yeah i think it's just a matter of like if we if you're seen in this movie it's so ridiculous that it's gonna like no one's gonna want to cast you at that point which to me is dumb
3: yeah I I'm sure we'll get into this but I there is such a stigma around camp um, mm-hmm. I think it's really misunderstood and I think um, it's uh, reviled by a bunch of people for the wrong reasons and I I people seem to want to divorce themselves from it as much as possible like their agents and i'm glad that zellweger and mcconaughey were like no i'm fine with it but um people have such an aversion to it and i think that's one reason that this movie has an unjustly terrible reputation um that people either don't get it or don't like it they just they hate the campy aspects of it
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because like camp, always kind of seems to uh, imply that. Uh, if you you know, you're doing something campy that that would, uh, you know, ruin the credibility of an actor or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, really, it's the other way around. Like, you know, because like if you're really willing to go there and take those risks and do something interesting, like, you know, like that, that, that should give that gives you more acting street cred because you're mm-hmm. getting to do the most acting when you do <laughs> camp movies.
3: <laughs> exactly. It's just a different style of performance. To me, if you can do straight movies in camp, you're you go up in my estimation as an actor because you have uh, a broader range and you can adapt yourself to what the material requires rather than making the material bend to you.
2: Yeah. You know, and it almost feels like this movie gets penalized by maybe people that haven't seen it. They're like, oh, it's the one that like Renee Zelliger and Matthew McConaughey was in and it was so bad that it got buried, you know, by people like that don't, have never even seen the movie
3: mm-hmm, exactly because
2: like mcconaughey's not doing anything that he does
1: not do in like a million other <laughs> movies oh no like i'm i would have to assume that um matthew mcconaughey had to dig back into um you know his uh Vilmer days whenever mm-hmm. he did killer joe um, oh yeah yeah uh, uh, I haven't seen the Killer Joe movie, uh, but I do know I've seen the stage play a few mm-hmm. times. I know, like you know, what goes on, and I, mm-hmm. I felt that whenever I uh, a little bit in some of the scenes in this, I was like, this kind of feels Killer Joe esque, mm-hmm. you know, some of those kitchen scenes, um, you know. So I, I have to imagine he he would recall on this uh, this energy again, a <laughs> uh, specific energy again.
2: I feel like a young Nick Cage watches. Matthew McConaughey in this movie. And it's like, I like the cut of this man's
1: jib. Yeah, he and goes, he goes, mm, he, he's on to something here.
2: I'm, I'm what is gonna that do this. vampire? Yes. I'm going to do this for the next 25 years. <laughs> um All right, let's talk a little bit of the movie and maybe we start with the family here. Because to me, this feels like a spoof on the original family Uh for a bunch mm. of reasons. Number one, like the first movie, the family are opportunistic cannibals. They're basically forced to fend for themselves. And basically they take advantage of anyone that's has the misfortune of stumbling across their path, right? They're not necessarily going out and we're like evil with a capital E. And they're not like kidnapping people off the street. It's like, no, like, Oh, we need to eat. And someone has stumbled in our way. And now we're going to, not only eat them but we're going to use their skin to make lampshades and we're going to use their bones to make furniture like there's almost something like really beautiful in it in a fucked up way Um, this family is like hey we're going to order like three for one pizza on a Friday night Uh, and one of them is like very pointedly a vegetarian pizza which is to me that made me chuckle on rewatch even the set design like I'm watching this movie and comparing it to the first one And you can see in the first one, like they have that Ed Gein backstory in mind, where they're like, "There's a lampshade made of human skin. There's a sofa made up of like spinal cords and arms. Like it's really terrifying." And in the next generation, basically, it's a family of hoarders. (laughs)
0: Like
2: you still have this very decrepit house, and it still is like, it's like unsettling to be there. But then when you start really looking at it is more than just like background set decoration you're like they just have boxes of old newspapers and torn furniture and you know like there's a box of remote controls that don't work which is just basically being a man in your 40s (laughs) is like you have remote controls to I literally have a draw of Roku remotes that don't (laughs) operate a single Roku in this house that's just called getting older and having a penis. I mean, I hate to tell you folks, but I mean that's it, <laughs> life.
1: No, I, I do feel that. Like I, I I felt I felt the lack of texture, um, you know, in the in the setting for this one. Even though like it, like the house, you know, that they found like very much looks like the original house, like on the outside. But then, like mm-hmm. you said, like on the inside, it just doesn't have that like you know that personality that texture. Uh, You know, that the family, you know, crudely gives, but it is personality, if anything. But yeah, like when I watch this one, it's just like, they're just like walking around, there's just lots of paper on the ground. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, and just like looks annoying. I'm like, ah, like... You know, at least the 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 chaos uh, in the other houses had purpose and it had, yeah. uh, you know, some uh, creative uh, thought behind it. But yeah, these guys—they're just these guys are just dirty.
3: <laughs> so I think there is a purpose because you, their whole um, their whole purpose in life is to scare these kids mm-hmm. past the point of sanity. They're supposed to make them experience the ultimate in terror. So they basically built themselves a haunted house to live in but Mm -hmm. since they're not cannibals they're like well what's scary what's spooky you know let's have it's they've basically built a set to bring these people here to scare them as much as possible i think Mm -hmm. they've allowed themselves to like if you told me go live in a spooky haunted house and you never have to clean you know my depression would be like bet I'm not cleaning a thing and I would look, my mm-hmm. house would look like that. You know, like if you told me your job is to live in a hoarder's house, I'd be like done. And mm-hmm. th- I think that's what they've done. They've built this haunted house and they've just kind of become part of the furniture themselves. So I, I do see method in the madness.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's scary like you said, so much is like it's yeah, kind of just grotesque. Yeah. See, yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Like, like mm-hmm. two and
1: three, it's like like it it really adds like you know a, a layer of just like kind of uh, creepiness and like kind of uh and of of like a an artful filth uh mm-hmm. to it in like two and three, but then this one, it's just like this one looks like you know like when you go to that 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 one friend's house that you like. Uh, always suspected it was just a little dirty And you're like go in their <laughs> house and you're just like You go in their house and you're just like kicking stuff Through the floor and it's like oh man why'd you Invite right. me here <laughs> um, th- That's the vibe I actually get like through the like the whole second half of this movie. Um, whenever and, uh, Renee Zellweger's just caught in a, in, in a dirty house uh, in a family dispute. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, quite hilarious. <laughs> and things don't seem out of place. Like everything seems to have some sort of
2: purpose. We're in the first movie when pam like stumbles into that room you're like why are there chicken feathers everywhere do you know what i mean like there are things that shouldn't be and it's the things that shouldn't be that make that kind of add to the terror of everything like on top of like the human bones you're like there is a live chicken hanging in this room in a tiny tiny cage and then like the floor is like covered with down feathers at that point and you're like This isn't like, it tricks your brain because your brain is like, this is not, this is like what a creature from outer space would do if it wanted to like mimic human behavior and how they would set up a room without knowing how to do it. And I think that adds to the fright where you don't necessarily get that here. Um, So my question for you both is like, you know, one of the readings of this movie is that it's a commentary on the state of horror movies post-Texas Chainsaw Massacre, especially a state of horror movies like late 80s, early 90s, which is generally considered
1: a downward trend. What are your thoughts? Like, what do you remember from horror? I mean, I kind of just saw it as like a... I mean, I honestly saw it as like a, a really natural progression mm-hmm. between, like like I said, as the films kind of go, because like three kind of also does some of these same stylistic choices that this one does. Uh, but then this one seems to like, again, like this, this one is taking certain elements of the previous sequels and then like cranking them up. So it's like, uh, you know, it like kind of has that loudness and crassness of the first one. but then like, um, it has,, um, uh of of the third one uh, whenever they start uh, introducing this element of like, rock and roll to this franchise mm-hmm. uh three and four uh, a lot of guitar uh, a surprising yep. amount of guitar in these two in those two movies i'm like uh, when did this become like a rock and roll heavy metal uh backwood slasher series now it like um i don't know it just i i kind of it just kind of seems like uh it, it's they they took the certain elements that they kind of wanted to comment on the franchise with and dial them up but Um, I mean, as far as like, you know, uh, where mid nineties, uh, uh, horror was, uh, I mean, there just wasn't really a lot of slashers at all. Um, so like, I don't know if it's like maybe going for like a slasher grasping for straws as far as like adding in this whole Illuminati, like weird, uh, stuff towards the end, like, um, but like, I don't know Like, was that, like, no, just nobody was really talking about slashers So it's like, what um, what statement or the current state of slashers at that time Are they trying to comment on if there just aren't any slashers at that time? I have some thoughts on that, but Jess, you first
3: well, I think, because you mentioned earlier that the house is grotesque without being scary And I think mm-hmm. that's the commentary Is horror being, and act of grotesquerie without actually scaring people and leaning mm-hmm. too much into that and I think they're very consciously calling attention to that so I do think it's a commentary just on you know the scares aren't there anymore but we kept the grotesqueness and mm-hmm. um, talking about how ineffective, and effectual that can be
2: so meaning like okay we'll make you sick to your stomach like we'll show you things that like will kind of like thrill you or make you feel a little sick. But at the end of the day, it's all with like a wink to the camera and we're not going to unsettle you like we did with the first movie.
3: Yeah, it's a different kind of unsettling. Like I... I, The original and this one are my two favorites of the franchise by far because I think Mm -hmm. they're... The first one wants to completely upend your worldview. Like show you things underneath the surface show you how terrifying the world really is and there's a different kind of getting underneath your skin in this one that it kind of wants to challenge what the first one did and interrogate what the first one did but it's taken the soul out of it on purpose a little bit Mm -hmm. um so that kind of focusing on the artifice and how everything is just a setup i think it's really interested in how people engage with horror and how horror engages with people and whether it does it authentically or not.
2: No, I think that's a good point. And I think that to your point to Devon about, well, what what even was a slasher at this time? It's an interesting time period because it feels like all of the four big franchises realized that like the basic approach no longer was going to satisfy audiences because You know, it had been, like, 20 years since the first of this movie, a decade since the first Elm Street, um, a decade and a half for Friday the 13th. And, like, your audience is just – they kind of grow up. Mm -hmm. So, like, the idea of, like, being, like, a teenager – That's like getting stalked at a summer camp. Like, it just seems silly at that point. Like, hey, that was fun when I was 18. Now I'm 31 and I've got like a house and a mortgage and a kid on the way. And like, that shit's way scarier. Um, So you see, like, all four franchises, like, we gotta do something different. So, New Nightmare comes out around this time and it's, you know, an early crack at like what Scream would do later on like oh freddy is a storytelling device um and we're going to comment on like how this movies get made jason is a worm that travels from body to body and he's not fighting against teenagers he's like going up against a single mother uh michael myers is not like the shape like the stoic face of evil anymore um you know he's actually of like another sort of cult illuminati um cult that is controlling things and the runes can stop him Um, and in this movie you have like the family is now controlled by like a cabal of world leaders that just want to scare people for nefarious reasons like Mm -hmm. everyone's trying to do something a little
1: bit different at this point um and and, you know mm -hmm. and i and now i can kind of see i can kind of see some of the commentary here maybe is on the formula of uh some of these movies on like Mm -hmm. you know like because it's kind of like okay how quickly can we get to our you know classic texas chainsaw stuff you know so it's like Mm -hmm. the the first you know 30 35 minutes of this is like you know just a kind of ridiculous like you know series of Unfortunate events and comedy of errors to like kind of get them here, like in but it's like in a kind of more ridiculous way than usual. It's Mm -hmm. just like, how we get these kids to house? Oh, I don't know. There's a prom, and then one of them cheats, and then they get Mm -hmm. mad and drive a car, and then they drive off, and then yeah, that's how they get there. And it's like, sure. And then, but then, Mm -hmm. like, okay, now we're gonna get here and we're gonna do our usual stuff, but then as we're doing our usual stuff, we're gonna hit you with. Bam, where did this uh cult come from? Who knows? And now, right, this is, and now we just now we're completely off the rails. What's going on? So it's like mm-hmm. maybe kind of shaking up uh, uh the formula a little bit. And, and it's interesting, uh, what you were when you were kind of describing the cult because like I kind of hadn't really thought of I, I didn't really think too much about the cult while I was watching, I was just like, oh, it's kind of weird and funny. Um, but um, that their purpose, that they work with Vilmer to uh, inspire fear, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, is now, like, now I kind of see it as, like, you know, like, uh, you know, the the horror industry itself, like, you know, like, yeah. what, you know, what are, what are we doing, um, you know, to uh, exploit, you know, the audience out of their fear, and, you know, like, what are we doing right now? And I guess, yeah, at that time, like it is just an interesting time that um, Mm -hmm. uh, horror is uh, spinning its wheels a little bit. Um, You know, people are, there are people trying stuff, but like everyone is uh, trying a little too hard almost. Um, So it's like, I kind of like that this one does uh, enough to like, kind of, again, like kind of. Uh, do something a little different uh, with the formula, but also still to, like kind of yeah. keep keep within its lanes as well as far yeah. as like a Texas Chainsaw movie goes, right? Because the horror that's big at this time, the horror that's
2: actually breaking through to audiences, like they're not even calling it horror; they're calling it a psychological thriller. So you get movies like Misery, you get movies like. Uh, Silence of the Lambs. You get movies like Wolf, where you get A-list actors at tell big pictures with big budgets, and the trait in there scary in some cases, and they're really well made and really well done. But the trade-off is you can't call them horror movies. You have to call them psychological thrillers. There's an article in Bloody Disgusting uh, from Justin Yandel came out a few years ago called This is Appalling: uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation as a commentary on the state of horror in 1993. And I pulled a quote from it because I thought it was really fascinating. And I thought it kind of opened up to like a really cool reading of this movie and what it's commentating on, like, where horror went. Like, Jessica, do you mind uh, reading from that
3: quote? Yeah, for sure. And I I have some thoughts on this quote once I've read it. Excellent. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, Justin Yandel says, Leatherface, once efficient, methodical, and near silent, now struggles to competently capture or kill his victims, all the while screaming like a petulant child. The family, no longer backwater cannibals, dines on pizza instead of the fresh meat of their victims. The dinner sequence, originally one of the most effective and horrifying scenes ever committed to film, goes so far off the rails it climaxes with Ginny turning the tables on her captors and scolding Leatherface into sitting down and shutting up. The ineffectiveness of it all, of this, is intentional, and we know this because a man in a limo pulls up and openly acknowledges it. Um, I have not read this full article, so I can't comment on that, but I do take issue with the characterization of Leatherface as efficient, methodical, and near-silent. Um, Leatherface has always been childlike. In the first mm-hmm. movie, he's he whimpers, he cries, he cowers. You know, Gunnar Hansen is a huge, hulking man, but he looks so much smaller than the rest of his family because they beat him and yell at him, and he cowers and folds into himself like an abused child. Um, he has so many misses and mistakes i mean the chainsaw dance in the original is funny because it's so ineffectual and he's Mm -hmm. you know a huge man holding a huge weapon but he's just flailing because he has failed in his Mm -hmm. objective you know leatherface in leatherface 3 playing with the speak and spell where he keeps looking at the clown and spelling out food like leatherface as a child who cannot kill on his own has been pretty heavily established in the first three films. So, I no offense whatsoever to Justin, but I take issue with that characterization because I don't think it's quite accurate. Though I do think it's interesting the how far the film takes it and mm-hmm. how intentionally ineffectual he is in this movie as opposed to the others. Yeah.
2: So, I agree with part of what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's a big shift from like the leather face of part 3, I think is more of like a standard Boilerplate, like slasher villain. Mm -hmm. Like, to the degree that, like, the beginning of the movie. Mirrors the beginning of a nightmare in Elm Street, like it announces, Mm -hmm. like we are delivering another iconic slasher villain right Mm -hmm. here. Where in the first two movies, he does have those like those childlike moments, like again, like I there's a reading of 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 Leatherface as an autistic person, like the inability to really communicate, the inability to handle the difficulty in strength in handling very strong intense emotions, and then like the soothing stemming behaviors, Mm -hmm. and like he was written to be. You know, someone on the spectrum like Hooper has said it using language that we don't really use in 2022 anymore for, you know... Um, So this is like if you take out three, it's kind of a natural progression Mm -hmm. where his efficiency comes in. Like in the first movie, like three people walk into his house and three people are killed in a row. Like boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. Now he's scared. He's terror. Like the key to that movie is like him running to the window and looking out and being terrified. Mm -hmm. But he's still a great killer. I read the dance at the end of the movie differently, not of like a moment of impotency, but almost like relief. Like there is some anger that one got away, but also like there's a joy because like all of the people that are coming to my house that are scaring me, they're all gone. All Mm -hmm. the bad people are gone. Mm -hmm. And now I can celebrate a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of see it. Uh, I I'm with the both of you because, like, again, like I it it it, it like I, I did kind of take a little umbrage with uh, the characterization of uh, Leatherface and like kind of taking it to to go as far as it did uh, with it because, uh, yeah, like you know in you know in the other in two and three specifically like you know they do very much like you know show like that he makes mistakes and like and then the fam and like that's part of like you know the family's power and hold over him is like yeah they get him to like do all these things for him but then if he makes one mistake then they get to punish him and then they Mm -hmm. get to you know keep on the power over him so it's like yeah that that is definitely always there uh and then uh with this one it's like yeah they they um, I feel like they because, yeah, with three, they kind of dialed it back a little bit and Leatherface was kind of a little more standard slasher. And they, they uh, just didn't take as many uh, moments to kind of show that that childlike behavior and like that, that uh, I, w- I would say three is the least emotional uh, Leatherface out of any of the uh, films, really. Yeah. Uh, but then in this one, it's like, OK, in case you like forgot um, you know, Leatherface is not shit in this family. They, you know, like they they run all over him, step all over him, and poor poor guy. Um, yeah. to the fact that like I mean, he is literally screaming the entire film almost. Uh, which um, which which I actually like not enjoyed. I will say, but um, yeah, I enjoyed uh, like that. I this felt the most expressive of Leatherface, and like mm-hmm. I I very much like actually like felt like i like felt like i knew the most of like kind of what was going on in leatherface's head yeah uh, with this one and and you know and mirroring the dance you know uh with this one uh very much kind of felt more like a oh my god i messed up uh and you know someone's gonna punish me versus like you said in the first one i do feel like it is a little bit more of a a relief angle but uh, Mm um yeah but they like kind of mirror them both
3: Mm -hmm. ways yeah
2: Here's my question. Oh, my! I have a question, but first, like a little statement. I think in the first two movies, is as, as much as like Leatherface gets yelled at at times, like "Ah, you lunkhead!" And there's a lot of like, weird as it is to say, a lot of love in that family. Like the cook, yeah. the hitchhiker, and Leatherface. Like they all genuinely love and look out for one another. They just have a weird way of doing it. In the second movie, like Chop Top and Leatherface are Bros. Like Chop Top is like slapping him high fives. He's like gently like let you got a Bubba's got a girlfriend and he's like gently kind of teasing him about it, but in a way that like your big brother would when like you're proud of your little brother, if that makes any sense. Like there's like a genuine affection in that family crew in the first two movies. Which is why I think we love that family so much that it's not in the third one, I think, even though it's a different family, it's still kind of there. Whereas this one, to your point, Jessica, like all they do is like torture Leatherface like W.E. is like he's a, a fucking asshole every time you see him like he's just and there's like nothing to his character except for that. He's completely forgettable except for that
3: yeah i honestly i keep forgetting his name even like i Mm -hmm. just the the pedantic quoting and everything but i always forget Mm -hmm. because it's hard he's a
2: reply guy
3: exactly and it's hard to stand out in a movie with mcconaughey being mcconaughey and you know leatherface or i think some fans call him pretty lady leatherface in this movie and you know it's hard to stand out in there but yeah i forget about him constantly except for how irritating he is
1: (laughs) it's like he's like the he's like the worst version of the hitchhiker or Mm -hmm. uh chop top in this one uh versus while vilmer is like the most like you know hyper realized version of like the cook or um you know tex maybe i guess in the third one Mm -hmm. um uh, Uh, (laughs) but um yeah, so the 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 way that they like kind of approach each one is like kind of interesting and then even with uh the the female uh you know role of you know Darla because you know the first two oh, we don't even have a uh you know a female figure like in the family versus in this one we like uh and then in the third one we like kind of have that and then she's like kind of this like back and forth like how am I supposed to feel about her kind of character, you know, dynamics all Darla. over the place.
2: I love Darla. We'll definitely yes. talk about her a bit cuz she's fucking awesome. Um I feel like the dude who is playing WE I I I have like headcanon that he got the role because like they needed the guy who came in like third place or like third runner up for like the Sol Star lookalike contest cuz they couldn't afford the guy that was like second runner up, so get me number 3. And cuz it's just like nothing to him in this movie. Um I almost wonder with this article if like if um John is almost thinking about the Leatherface in the next two movies. When you think about like the Leatherface in the seek sequ- in the remake and then the sequel, like he is a take no prisoners, no humor, no hesitation, no emotion, killer. Like that is the leatherface it feels like he is referring to when he writes this article.
1: Yeah. And, but, but I do, uh, the only thing that I do like about um, this, like, you know, like, you know, extreme characterization of leather faces, like that. I feel like it does, Uh, help the moment where Jenny does turn the tables. I feel like it does help that moment work better Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because like, you know, like I said, like she's literally like, just like in the middle of the family kind of imploding on themselves, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because again, like how you said, it's very different in this one versus in the first one where they're arguing is, you know, just like kind of familiar squabbling Mm -hmm. and bickering versus this one. Like they literally, Cannot you know go two seconds without you know fucking with each other um, to to. <laughs> <laughs> to to you know focus on torturing Jenny like they they're supposed to be torturing her and she's like you guys aren't even doing a good job of doing that right now because you guys can't stop fighting and now I'm going to turn it around and like so uh, and just the added moment of uh, Leatherface just screaming and then she goes just shut you shut the fuck up <laughs> you sit down we definitely then- want to talk about that <laughs>
2: yeah I definitely when we talk about Jenny because that is a pretty great moment but let's keep talking Leatherface for a few more since we're on that tip uh this time around played by robert jack so he's the fourth person in four movies to play him and and jacks was like a local kind of like austin man about the art scene uh sadly he passed away uh, a day before his 42nd birthday in 2001 from a stomach aneurysm and but he's like spoken of like really highly by everyone involved with this movie they talk about him like being this big jolly dude that everybody knew like he had like monster figurines in his apartment like his was the place where everybody would go to like drink beer and watch movies and like just talk shit with one another and he was someone that was like really involved in the uh, performance art and music scene in Texas including like he co-hosted a local radio show with Gibby Hayes like the front man of the butthole surfers Um, and he actually has a duet on the soundtrack with Deborah Harry of Blondie fame, which is titled uh, Dear Inziger Wig, uh, which she released as a CD single in 1997. I think it is the song that is playing when Darla is like driving back from the pizza joint, although I'm not 100% sure. Mm. Um, but he was like a beloved figure. Um, in terms of the leather face in this movie... I want to posit a theory that the leather face you see in the next generation is not the leather face from the first movie that, and I I know like Devon, you have like an urban legend theory. So let me just spit this out very quick that like, I think about how the Illuminati is trying to scare people. And what they've done is they've hired a bunch of actors to play roles. So you do your – because I have a whole spiel. So rather than me um, go on, like, what is your, Devon, what is your urban legend theory? Well, I'm real excited to hear that one now because that sounds way better. Oh, it's uh, good. It is – I will say this. (laughs) You know what? It is one of the things I'm most excited to talk about of anything we've ever done. On this show. Okay, so well, listeners be prepared to be let down with that kind of build up.
1: Well, well mine is less in my theory is uh, less about the, the portrayals in the film and mine's mm-hmm. more just about the, the sequels in general. Um, because, because there's two different, if you like look up, you know, Texas Chainsaw timeline and you like Google it. Uh, there's a couple different graphics that come up and I've seen uh, multiple different uh, descriptions of the timelines. Um, and, uh, the one that I kind of saw that I found interesting that like kind of spawned this, that I thought was like that each sequel after the first one. So it's like each one is kind of its own thing. And I kind of, uh, see it as like, it's still, it's like still in the realm of the original. They're all in the realm of the Texas original Texas chainsaw. Uh, Mm -hmm. but they are um, and they all are canon I think but in a way uh, except for the Texas Chainsaw 3D timeline that one's a little bit differently but as far as 2, 3 and this one um, that these are all like recounts by the survivors of like you know you know how they think that the events uh, went down that night And, uh, each one is different depending on the experience that they like kind of went through in it. Um, you know, so it's like, you know, stretch kind of, you know, uh, is, uh, in a certain state of delirium that is like a little bit more fantastical, you know, she's Mm -hmm. this radio personality. So like her, her depiction of like kind of what happened, uh, is, is in that kind of vein. And then in the third one that like sassy gal, I forget what her name is, but, um, uh her her recount is a Kate little Hodge bit more yeah. uh yeah her her recount is a little bit more like you know grizzled and grim and like dark and uh and then and then this one Jenny because because uh this goes into a, my whole something I love about Jenny uh Jenny is one of the few pure stoner final girls yes. uh <laughs> you know she is she is uh you know been stoned this entire time so this is her depiction of you know the way that went down because she sees the family as a fucking joke and mm-hmm. she's like, well, this is the way it went down for me, uh, you know, when I encountered the the the, the mm-hmm. family and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, and added on just her being stone like that's the the way that this one is uh, depicted in in her brain. So uh, yeah, love love her and then I love that that's yeah that's what I'm going with. You know you reminding me that Jenny is a stoner
2: it unlocks so much about oh that's why this choice was made um, I love that. i forgotten <laughs> about that. Like that's why she reacted this way. That is beautiful. Why was Leatherface wearing a breastplate? I,
1: I don't <laughs> know, but
2: that's what I remember. <laughs> but just even things like, what are you gonna do to me? Like that's not. I'd be like, what the fuck, you know? Like, you know. And she's totally chill. Like whatever, so man. Chill. Like we got to get out of here. You know. What? Are you, what about your? Before I go off, Jessica. What about yourself?
3: God, I. Uh, came unprepared because i don't have any amazing theory like that i'm obsessed Mm -hmm. with that i love the idea that the the final girl telling the story colors the tone of the film the plot of the film um i am boring i've been assuming that it's the same (laughs) leather face from film Mm -hmm. to film um which is what fascinates me so much because i i haven't seen a slasher villain change so much from installment to Mm -hmm. installment before Um, but now I'm going to reconsider my whole approach now that I'm hearing these theories.
2: (laughs) Well, let me tell you my theory. Let me spell it out and see what you think after. So from the perspective of Henkel as he's making this movie, Hooper's original, it's considered one of the most terrifying movies of all time. It's one that like 50 years later, I think it's one of the, rare movies that it still resonates with audience. It still has an impact. Like it's still unsettled. Like if you show someone this for the first time, it's still super unsettling. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the record. Like I love John Carpenter's Halloween, but if I'm 17 years old watching Halloween, I'm probably not scared. Do you know what I mean? Like if I'm watching that in 2022, like so much other stuff has come out that I am no longer scared of that movie. If I'm the typical teenager, whereas like Texas Chainsaw Massacre will still fuck you up for days. Okay, Mm. and after that, so 20 years in when this movie is made, you have 20 years of others trying to like duplicate what Hooper, what Henkel, what that whole crew had created. And there's a slew of imitators between the original and this one, but nothing is ever coming close to it. And if you buy into the idea that Henkel's creating a satire and skewing, skewering the direction of modern horror, a few different things kind of point to the idea that this is not the Leatherface of Hooper's movie. So the idea that, like you said, uh, Devon, like, it's a cautionary tale. It's an urban legend. It's something that you tell people right before they get behind the wheel for a road trip and a night out. Oh, like, be really careful. Don't stop for anyone. Like, don't knock on doors you don't know. And a matter of fact, at one point, uh, Heather, when they're walking, is like, oh, there's that guy in Chicago where they opened his fridge and there were a bunch of hearts in it. Like, talking about Milwaukee's... Um, oh, crap. Why can't I remember his name? The serial killer who...
3: Thinking of Jeffrey Dahmer? Yeah.
2: Yes. So you have like Heather saying, Oh, you know, there's that killer from Chicago, you know, Milwaukee, Jeffrey Dahmer, they're talking about so it's a cautionary tale. The Illuminati is wanting to expose people to horror something beyond their own comprehension like something their minds can't even begin to fathom and to me there's a difference between horror and terror like terror is the ability to imagine something that could happen to you like i could get into a car accident that's so bad the car is set on fire and i die because sometimes i look down at my phone when i shouldn't terror is like You know, like, I'm terrified that, like, working in a school, whatever, there's a school shooting. Like, that's imaginable. Horror is this idea of this is something that should not be. Terror is something that can happen. Horror is something that is like this should not exist. This cannot be. And it's hard to imagine the circumstances of the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually happening. So what the Illuminati have done is they've taken the story of the Sawyer family from the first movie, The Cook, The Hitchhiker, Leatherface, and how they killed these five kids that just happened to take a uh, you know like run out of gas and knock on the wrong door and this is what wound up like it's the most horrifying experience that a person could live through and what they're doing is they're taking this story and they're choosing their victims and they're putting them through it over and over similar to like cabin in the woods like oh what trope are we going to use to scare the shit out of these people you know and you you know you you pick it um, and i think that's even it's a um, scene here in that like Sally makes a really brief cameo appearance at the end of this movie like Marilyn Burns is the woman that is rolled past on the stretcher pushed by Paul Partain who played Franklin um, the person oh, that's, that that's interesting yeah. yeah it's like a little thing that confirms like this is the effect this is what we're going for and the people that the Illuminati have chosen to put their plan into effect like they're not up to the task. They're just like, they're not that good at it. And when you think about it, like who would be, like what makes the original family so scary is that you can't fake that kind of insanity. Like because to the Sawyer's, all of their decision make a really perverse sense. Like none of the things they do seem crazy to them. They're not evil with a big E. They're like no. Like the the cook even tells the kids like don't go to the, your old grandfather. Just get on the road and go, kids. Like there's nothing for you around here. He's not even thinking like oh yeah, take this turn, go here, knock on the door, we'll take a good care of you. Where in part three, like, Vigo's character, Tex, is like, oh yeah, take this road. You know, he's luring them into a trap. In the second movie, they are, like, specifically targeting, like, the yuppies basically to get the meat, because the meat makes the chili. In the first movie, they're just living life. You know, and, like, if someone happens to stumble by, and they happen to look like they could cook them, like, great, we'll do it. Um in this like they're not trying to call attention to themselves and the the folks in this movie the family here they're all about it like matthew like vilmer is like look behind you like look what i did he's like the kid on who's like basically like drawn a really cool picture for his mom and is like look at my picture look at my picture look at my picture like he wants people to see what he's done like but none of them are very good at their jobs like leatherface like he's trying to like capture heather and she keeps getting away from him like she he puts her on the hook and she just like gets off it and starts stumbling (laughs) down the road like barry i think lives i think like barry just gets up and leaves after getting hit with a hammer and kicked like he's still kicking like this is why they're not cannibals because, like, why would they be? They're actors. Like, they're punching a clock. Like, Darla has a nine to five gig. Vilmer's working a tow truck company. W.E. is fucking doing the
1: soul soul impersonating contest like, across the. He's just like, kind of, yeah, he's just like kind of chilling. But I, I love the idea of uh, them being actors mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know these uh, the, the the crazy weird things In the movie mm-hmm. being just like Weird acting choices yeah. Like uh, the guy whoever The guy that um, you know Vilmer just shows up And I love the idea of like The alumni people mm-hmm. being like What's that thing on your leg? And he's like, Oh, mm-hmm. like it's a hydraulic leg. It's scary, right? Yep. And They're like, No, that's not scary. That's gonna <laughs> no, cause it's, pro- stupid. it's gonna cause problems later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you control it with multiple remotes. Like, I feel like that's gonna be an issue later. And he's mm-hmm. like, Nah, it's it gonna-. is. He's like, Nah, it's gonna be great. And then like, and then they're like, Leatherface, you're you're leaning way too much into the screaming, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And like, I, yeah. I like that these are just like all poor acting choices. <laughs> yeah it is and, and, and the quoting to, too huh? uh yeah, We's to, quoting yeah wb
2: we is quoting you know it, to me it's like they're just like okay this is your story this is your motivation go with it you know and like that's to me why leatherface isn't scary like even like when jenny tells him to shut the fuck up like leatherface shuts the fuck up you know, he's like, oh, I guess this isn't, isn't working. Like, it, if you could almost hear him going like, all right, what's my motivation here? You know, like, what am I doing here? Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jessica? Like, when you hear that, are you like, yes, that makes sense? Or are you like, that's the fucking dumbest shit <laughs> I've ever heard? No,
3: definitely not the latter. <laughs> no, I, I find that really fascinating. I I think... I, right
2: now you're going to say something that is like every girl that is like, it's not you. It's me. Or like, I think we should be friends. Like this is the talk I'm preparing for right now.
3: <laughs> no, no, I, I honestly, I want to rewatch the movie with that in mind, but I don't think that th- nobody's that good of an actor to do what Vilmer does. He takes too much pleasure in what he's doing to me. And Darla feels like she's been roped in like everybody is in an abusive relationship with Mm -hmm. everybody else. We have multiple abusive codependent relationships happening and Darla has been roped in by a guy she thought was nice and normal and she's slowly gotten
0: brought Mm -hmm. into his
3: world. It reminds me of William Friedkin's bug to be honest with you. Kind of bringing Darla into the crazy a little bit. um, Until you find out that the chip in her brain might not be fake because the Illuminati is involved. So I am not 100% sold on them being actors, but I Mm -hmm. like where you're going with it because it's really interesting to me. Okay.
2: (laughs) Rewatch it from that perspective and then come back and tell me what you think. I do believe that it's like, if if not actors per se, like
1: maybe they're like, definitely they're, they're chosen. getting paid, yeah, yes, yeah. like still getting they're, paid in some mm-hmm. way to be like, yeah, like maybe and like may, like maybe that that this is like all of their like actual mm-hmm. things, like yeah. you know, uh, Darla's supposed to be an insurance agent and maybe mm-hmm. she uh, you know hates being right. She is an insurance agent, but then hates it. And then you know mm-hmm. when the Illuminati come, people come and go, okay, hey, if you do this whole a uh, weird charade thing, inspire some fear, you know, like right. Whatever Whatever they talk her her and, and she does it yeah, yeah. Uh, and she, so like yeah like they and and like you said like they just kind of uh they don't understand the assignment if you will <laughs> yeah
3: I do like I mean, that you angle. could
2: you could see the Illuminati like okay in New Jersey we have this like Camp lake and there's a crazy dude with a hockey mask that kills you know like mm-hmm. they are setting up shop all over the country kind of like running this
1: racket what if what if they this would be a fun, like, uh, shared universe thing if, uh, they were the ones, like, kind of above and, like, kind of overseeing, uh, things in a fashion, like, uh, behind the mask. That's
3: exactly mm-hmm. what I was going to say. They're behind man. Leslie Vernon.
1: Yeah, which me and Mike talked about, and um, mm-hmm. uh, that that'd be interesting. That like you know, like you said, like in the various countries, like in behind the mask, in in behind the mask of Leslie Vernon, their Texas wow. chainsaw uh, like representation is specifically this version of the family, yeah. the next gen version. Yeah, yeah. I like how you're thinking. Yeah. I like where you're pulling. Y'all
3: that. are bringing yep. me on board with it. I'm getting more and more <laughs>
2: rewatch and <laughs> listeners like rewatch the movie from this perspective because like i think i'm on to something like it. all right let's move on though let's talk about vilmer because i think this movie is very much like matthew McConaughey's movie uh, in large chunks. Until, I would say, Zellweger like wrested away from him and the last act of the movie. So, I mean, he knows what kind of movies he's in. He just goes for this gusto. Like the line, like, first I'm going to kill you. Ain't no fucking biggie. It's like, how many people... You could count the number of people that could like pull that line off on like one hand. Even if you shot a couple fingers. Off. So... <laughs> Jessica, what is your what is your what are your initial thoughts in Vilmer on Vilmer here as a character, as the ringleader?
3: Vilmer is I love big performances. I love performances where the actor lets their personality shine. I've never seen McConaughey not do that, but mm-hmm. he is he finds the scenery so delicious in this movie. He just loves hamming it up i am obsessed with vilmer i i think that's one reason i love this movie so much i i don't dig the big performances in texas chainsaw 2 because they don't feel as meaty no pun intended or as Mm -hmm. there's not as much soul behind them to me um but mcconaughey just going for it and as you said some of these lines feel like he kind of took over script writing duties and was like, No, this is how I would say this
0: mm-hmm. because
3: he kind of makes it his own, not to use too much of a cliche. Um, but yeah, I'm with you on McConaughey and Zellweger make this movie. Um, I, I do love some of the other actors and especially what darl is doing in this Mm -hmm. movie but vilmer is just that's why i i still kind of come down and say i don't think he could fake it that much because vilmer has fire ants in his brain and Mm -hmm. you can't really fake that (laughs) yeah um but i yeah vilmer is probably one of my favorite horror characters honestly
2: I'll say this, like, and I think, you know, his character is hired for a reason, like, okay, you're going to be the guy that, like, goes out and gets the shit done, and you're the right kind of crazy. Like, you see him, like, cutting himself up, like, doing whatever he can to unnerve uh, Jenny. Yeah. I'll say this, like, he's a bully. Like, I just, Mm -hmm. like, I had to stop the movie to record, and I stopped it right at the scene where um, Jenny, like, slaps because like when she stands up to him and she actually slaps him and says like don't you ever fucking touch me again, to that point like he is actually physically intimidated everyone, including the women in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like he shot at W.E. He's like smacked W.E. over the head with a. Oh, he does that right after he hits W.E. with a hammer. He like almost chokes Darla to death with his boot when someone stands up to him. All he does is point at her, and then he throws a book near her. But he shuts up; like he doesn't actually put his hands on her. Like when the Illuminati dude shows up, he like come back. He's completely emasculated by him. You see, like this bully that is put in his place. Like, do you think like the hitchhiker? Would like if if Jenny said shut up? Do you think the hitchhiker would actually shut up, or would he pull out his knife and start covering her up? You know what I mean? Like he's so there's something that is still like that kind of fragile toxic male. Like I'm gonna puff my chest out and I'm gonna bully people until someone stands up to me, and then I'm gonna back down. I thought of the quote in it chapter one where like Henry's dad looks at his friends and goes Mm -hmm. all it takes is a little bit of a little bit of fear to make a paper man crumble which I fucking love that like I actually want to get that tattooed on me somewhere because it's a fucking great line Mm -hmm. and that's what I thought of like
1: watching that scene again Devon what are your thoughts on on Vilmer oh yeah I love me a a good old performance of someone Mm -hmm. just doing everything everything that comes to mind yeah let me just try it out go for it Mm -hmm. and uh and I, I and it's interesting because he he is like kind of like this weird amalgamation of like you know previous characters like Tex and the cook and uh and he's like you know like he 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 just his his only answer like he's one of those people that like like you said like whenever you're like kind of in like a confrontation with them like their only answer is just like get louder Mm-hmm. uh is really like his thing like i mean he is very vicious but like you know towards i mean he's towards darla but like obviously it's like again like someone you know people that he like can physically intimidate you know mm-hmm. in his family but um and yeah like I, I love like you know once he's put in his place it, it uh you know they, they they do show a lot of layers to vilmer like you know like as much as this is looked at as like kind of like a meme performance almost uh which don't get me wrong some of it is and even that though is so much fun like just the, the boo
0: boo boo, boo. <laughs> like all just mm-hmm. all
1: the noises and like you know is is uh is fun you know and all the McConaugheyisms are, are are fun and like yeah it is but at the same time like this is a character that like you know like has stuff going on um, and like they are portraying these like kind of various uh levels of crazy t- in a way, and it is just it is more than uh, you know, and, and like you said, like uh, you know, um, you you kind of compared this to like something Nick Cage would do, and I see it like kind of in that same way, like I see a lot of Nick Cage's performances like that. It's mm-hmm. like you know, he's not just being big for the sake of being big, like. You know he's doing it with purpose, and yeah. McConaughey is like doing everything that he's doing in this movie, like with purpose behind it. You know, to just like you know be as big as he can. Like I mean, he like literally just like takes up like the in- like entire like you know frame. Like he feels like he's like six eight in this movie for mm-hmm. some reason. Like you know that's you know what he's bringing.
3: Yeah. And going back to the point about him being a bully, there are different levels of that for him. He keeps telling Jenny, you know, oh, you're a smart girl. This is going to be fun. Like he, he's mm-hmm. having more fun with her because she's more of a challenge. But once yes. that challenge gets a little too much, mm-hmm. like he's got such a superiority complex with the rest of his family members. So he sees her as not quite an equal, but uh, more of a challenge for him. But when it gets to be too much, that's when he cowers immediately. I really like the dynamics of that relationship as she gets bolder and more fed up and more just like i'm gonna do whatever the fuck i need to do to survive Mm -hmm. when she really challenges him that's when he backs down and i really love the way they play with each other like when he's got her his hands around her throat and why shouldn't i just kill you or something and she says you know you need you want me alive for a reason and he backs off realizing you know Mm -hmm. he's more of a handful than he anticipated i really like the way they play with each other that way yeah
1: it, you know, it's like, you know, it's that that theory of like um, when you talk about like, you know, sometimes you got to out crazy crazy, you know, I love that. Mm-hmm. That is Jenny's like kind of theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, you can totally cut the story if you want. But this story nope. is hilarious What's... to me. Tell me this story. Um, uh, I am a bartender by by mm-hmm. night. And, uh, you know, I've seen many a things, been in many uh, interesting situations. And uh, this was actually like, I don't know, six months ago. And uh, there's an altercation trying to 86 this guy out of the bar. And, uh, you know, he's calling everybody names. He's yelling. uh, He's throwing glasses and stuff. Like, it's getting pretty intense. And, and, uh, and, you know, just, like, the only thing I could think of was I was, like, I just got to get, like, super fucking, like, weird with him. And uh, Mm -hmm. I thought of an episode of Blue Mountain State. And uh, this guy is just going crazy. He's telling me how he wants to beat my ass, and like he's like calling me all these things. And they starts calling me like you know homophobic slurs. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I go, I got it. So he started saying that, and I go. I go, I go, I go. Oh yeah, I was like, I'm gonna suck your dick then. And he was like, what? And I was like, I was like, come on. I was like, let me suck your dick. I was like, and he's like, and he's he would just got so flustered. And I like, mm-hmm. I, I started going towards him. I was like, reaching for his shorts. I was like, come on. I was like, get it out. Let me suck that dick. And he just got so flummoxed that he like literally turned I... around. He dropped it, the glass he had in his hand, turned around, and just like left. <laughs> right.
2: I love it. <laughs> Why would I ever even think about cutting that? Story like that oh, is the that is the bumper
1: going into this. <laughs> it was show. it was I, it was very satisfying because I was like that's mm-hmm. about as out weirding as uh, you're gonna get with episode. So that, that 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 was Jenny uh, in this <laughs> in this whole mm-hmm. uh, debacle. I love the energy that uh, Jenny brought.
3: That's oh. the episode title. Let me suck that dick. <laughs> show Let this. Let that's absolute.
2: This episode. Look, we are all about talking about dick sucking. Yes. I mean, that is you know. <laughs> If there's one thing that this podcast is about, like that would be probably not the first thing, but it would be up there. It it's, be, up there. it's up there. It's up there. All right, let's move on to Darla, and you know, no non there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking of, so I, you know, I will say like Tony Paresky, Perensky, Perenski, who plays uh, Darla in this. She is like one of the few performers that like sees what McConaughey is doing. Is like okay, I can match that. Like, she matches his energy. Like, she doesn't feel overwhelmed when she's sharing the screen with him. And I love that. So, little note, like, Henkel based this character on a woman, Carla Faye Tucker. Uh, She A woman who was executed by the Texas penitentiary system after she and her then-boyfriend, like, killed two people with a pickaxe after a drug deal gone bad. Which, like... I was shocked that a drug deal, shady drug deal, could go bad. Like what? Never. Though you know, are you sure? Um, so Henkel like recounts like reading about like her story, like in her giving the description of the event and like basically describing it in these overtly sexual turns terms, like killing these people, like actually really turned her on, um, and that's kind of how this character is written. Like she is she says at one point i think in the director's cut like hey treat me right or i'll go back to my husband you like she is adds an element of sexuality to this movie and this element of like danger through her sexuality that's not there cuz she's like when the cop is flirting with her and she's like uh-oh like she's kind of like do i want to lead this guy on you know she invites the um drive through clerk to like look in the trunk of her car like nothing good will come of that but she's so like cocksure and confident in herself and like she knows she can basically get men to do whatever she wants and like i don't think she's wrong like she's fucking hot in this i mean just like darla is like heather is very beautiful like i think heather is like extremely beautiful young woman but darla is like Clean these boots
1: with your tongue fucking hot, all right? So, all right, who wants to follow that up? What's I mean, your thoughts it, it, I, on- I put in my notes she's a very hot Karen Is was my first impression <laughs> of her in, like, the first half before, like, really uh, seeing her uh, true uh, zaniness coming out whenever she's, like, with the family. Because, yeah, when she's on her own, she has this, yeah, certain uh, certain thing to her that's uh, is very wild and, like... I was just like her. Her, uh, I love how our introduction to her literally is. Um, her answer to some kids throwing a rock through her window is to flash them, and she and she's like very uh, uh, happy about it too. Like, oh yeah, you know they're always trying to get me to flash them. It's like who is, who are you? Who are you? Uh, I <laughs> gathered some
2: rocks outside my front yard. I'm like maybe I should try this in my neighborhood, but. All I got was arrested. So <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: what are your thoughts, Jessica?
3: No, I'm with you 100%. Like her attitude, she lives on a different plane of existence. But I, I like that you mentioned that she's really the first character to bring sex into the franchise. Like she lives in this kind of askew universe where everything revolves around her and her sexuality. Like she's like, this is my world. Y'all are just living in it. You're welcome. And I, I really respond to people like I envy people like that. I don't, you know, necessarily envy where Darla is in her life, but I envy that confidence and that swagger. And I I love part of the beauty of the first movie is having normal people in abnormal circumstances and watching them lose their minds as they try to make sense of everything. And that's exactly what darla does you know when jenny is in danger and goes back in kind of a mirror of the scene where um, sally goes back to the barbecue shop slash gas station when she goes back there for safety darla's still like obsessed with pizza and obsessed with people's (sighs) sexual desire and she they're not hearing each other she adds this element of dangerous sex to this abnormal world that makes it so much creepier and crazier. And I think having, you know, sex that might be out of place is another commentary perhaps on horror at the time. Like here are some breasts, you know, um, it's the
2: most gratuitous boob shot like in the world, Mm -hmm. right? in a series that doesn't really have, this is the first like nudity in the series Mm -hmm. as a whole, right? Yep.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, aside from uh, if you count stretches legs as nudity cuz mm, mm mm but <laughs> uh you know there there is an interesting like you know one two punch of scenes with Darla and you know at at first there there's this one line you know after her and Vilmer fighting and they're like kind of have their moment and she has this line where she goes you know I could go back to my husband. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so it was like I, you know, at that moment, I almost like kind of felt bad for her for a second Mm -hmm. because I was like, you know, there's like a I was like there's like a desperation to her. Maybe I was like, maybe that's what it is on, like how she's like kind of tangled up and all of this. Um, But then at this, but then like two scenes later it's her and Vilmer like, you know, when they're like, you know, making out and they're like, you know, like, you know, fighting each other and like mm-hmm. you know, shoving, she's fucking with his leg and like causing him pain and like, you know, getting pleasure. And I was like, oh, okay, no, no, no. She, she wants to be here. Mm-hmm. um, and, You know? Uh, yeah. And, and that's, that's fine. Do your thing, Darla. Uh, <laughs> yep. So it's like, I, I like how quickly, you know, they like were able to change the way that you feel about her and like it, like uh, kept her very fresh, you know, she is a, uh, you know, uh, it made her, you know, very three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that she
2: sees right through W.E. Like, she doesn't have time for him. She's so dismissive of him. Like, she just completely regards him as a complete non-entity, and she sizes him up. And you know that, like, in a, I, I picture a world where, like, w e is the one that approached her first and she like looked right through him Mm. to vilmer do you know what i mean she's like like nope Um, um so yeah i love her in this movie what do you make of her relationship with jenny because it's almost sisterly like when they first meet she's like kind of like whispering girl talk with jenny like she talks like about her like breast enhancements she's like you know people keep staring but they've changed my life and she's like kind of like almost like she's found like a a, the little sister or best friend she never had um and you see like at one point jenny is like i just want to die she's like no darling you don't want it she's like talking to her like she's not trying to harass her she's not trying to intimidate her like in her own weird way she has this weird sisterly Mm. love for jenny
1: okay so what about this what about Mm -hmm. this uh because this kind of goes back to uh behind the mask a little bit Mm -hmm. what if darla was previously a victim in jenny's seat and she went and she went through all this but then Mm -hmm. she like went through all this and was like kind of like successfully broken by Mm vilmer and then like now that's why she's in it and then like maybe sees jenny as the next candidate to be like oh hey you might actually survive this like Mm -hmm. you have some like you got some in you you might survive this and then become part of the family like maybe she kind of sees it in that way i love that
2: idea
3: that's how i see it because she is surrounded by men She doesn't have any other female energy. She doesn't have anybody. She really sees as her equal. Um, And I think she sees that in Jenny. So she wants wants another woman in the family so she can have... She won't be so outnumbered, I think.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I love And that kind of plays into my theory of, like, the Illuminati hiring people for this role. Like, okay, you could be Jenny. Like, we're going to recruit you. Like, do you want to actually take over a role here like i really like that idea Mm -hmm. speaking of the illuminati i don't know what to make of them like i don't know if like is this like Hankel kind of commentating like is the illuminati commentating on how like horror thinks of and depicts like southerners and rednecks like oh of course you guys are backwoods cannibals like that's what people think of southerners and rednecks and horror movies which wasn't a thing prior to texas chainsaw massacre and deliverance like those two movies kind of created
1: backwoods hick horror in that it just became its own thing hmm i mean i i guess i kind of could see it as uh this alumni group here is like uh, i guess maybe the stand-in for the horror filmmaking industry and uh hinkle's kind of thoughts on it you know like you know even involving you know his thoughts Mm -hmm. on coming back for this of being like okay like you want the you want the exploitation backwoods stuff you Mm -hmm. want uh -hmm. we're gonna churn out the Mm -hmm. the formula you want that and then like kind of uh and like you said like this uh instead of getting the the usual that they're supposed to get you got Mm -hmm. this this family uh that just you know does everything just like in the most chaotic way possible um and then that's why the illuminati and like you know the the movie industry uh, Mm -hmm. itself he's like oh like you know i've been kind of handcuffed over my career in in certain ways um and you know and like that's his depiction like his depiction on uh, a producer emailing him notes is uh, a guy coming in, opening his shirt, and there being a bunch of rings <laughs> on his stomach. Mm-hmm. That's his idea of the producer, you know, the bigger up producer. So uh, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, I
3: see. What it, do you think, Jess? I see it as like his commentary on horror fans and horror films in general. Like, what what are you getting out of watching people suffer? What enjoyment are you getting? What insights on life are you getting by watching people go through these horrible things that's what i think he's doing
2: yeah i think that i think that's the closest i can come to it like that is like all right what is it you want like what direction you know you're kind of like oh we puppets on a string here just kind of doing your bidding um i don't have a lot on barry and Sean Sean in particular the only note I have is like dude why are you running in a straight line on a road when this dude has one leg (laughs) what are you
1: thinking man
2: like any thoughts on Sean
1: uh I mean I don't really have thoughts on either one of them except for like how I kind of said at the beginning it was like Barry was like Mm -hmm. this like exaggeration and like almost makes me mad that like he like yeah gets away because I was like god he's Mm -hmm. like literally the worst (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. you know him them having him like go out of his way that like oh not only is uh you know because like how we've always talked about like in uh in the first one like uh, is the family and the right because the kids you know trespass and it's like in mm-hmm. this one uh you know barry literally not only trespasses but is like i'm gonna trespass and lock you out of your own house mm-hmm. actually dumbass it's, just like, it's yeah. just like geez louise guy and he just like no matter how bad the situation got it's just he like never stop saying just mm-hmm. like the shittiest worst things um so like i don't know like i guess Whatever his character is meant to to represent, uh, it did it, it make me feel things because I was just like, mm-hmm. "God damn, this guy like sucks so bad." But then, like, yeah, I don't know. Sean was kind of a a nonentity, uh, sucks, you know, another stoner. But he was he went out early, so uh, R.I.P. I will, uh, you know, uh, take a take a bong rip for him mm-hmm. uh, in his honor.
3: Yeah, like I, there's there are so many interesting things going on in relationships with like men being in power over women like jenny all of her mother's boyfriends have um it's implied that they have had more sexual interest in jenny than in her mother like jenny Mm -hmm. has had to protect herself by dressing frumpy as as frumpily as possible to Mm -hmm. not draw attention from men you know barry is a cheater and you know tries to weasel his way out and manipulate in every possible situation. Vilmer, you know, physically abuses women. And, you know, we don't know anything about whether he sexually abuses women, but there's a lot of power exerted over young women or vulnerable women in this movie. And I think Barry is just another symptom of that. Oh, like, you know, look how shitty this guy is and how much Mm -hmm. he uses women and how he doesn't really think of them as people. And Mm -hmm. then just, you see that happen with uh, like every female character in this movie.
2: There's never a moment you're supposed to root for him. Like he's introduced like making out with another girl that's not his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And he's like leaning on like, oh, my father is. And then like insert the occupation here. And like Sean is like his line. And he's like, oh, if you don't have sex with me, I'll get like prostate (laughs) cancer and die, which is the. I don't know if that is a pickup line
1: that would work. The, um, the funny thing is, he doesn't even say it right. He says prostrate. Right. It's like, dude, you're not even saying the, the, the thing properly when you're trying mm-hmm. to sound like, you know, you know what you're talking right. about, which is, I find just like hilarious. Yeah.
2: Right. And he's gaslighting before gaslighting was even a term where he's like, well, it's not my fault these women are too stupid to mm-hmm. not know that I'm lying to them. Like, he's t- the total, like, the ends justify the mean type of person like he would grow up to be a crypto bro do you know what i mean (laughs) like he's totally he's so such an asshole in this movie that like you're rooting for him to get it and i i do think that he just like gets away and you just never hear
1: from him again i don't think he's killed in this movie i don't remember Cause I mean, well, cause I remember when Vilmer picks up Jenny and he says, "Like look in the mm-hmm. back," and we see Sean's body is Sean that other one, Barry, he, or the other
2: one? Is there the was dude two bodies, was, but it's the guy that was driving the car they hit that Vilmer like snaps his snap. neck. Oh, right. right. So That's okay. So is. yeah.
1: So it wasn't Barry. Yeah. Yeah. So because yeah, um, I, I can't remember where he went. Yeah. The, the last character
2: I have here is Heather. And I don't have a lot of my notes are like, Heather is very pretty. <laughs> um, Cause she is like Heather is like strikingly beautiful, but watching it right before this, like she actually like has a clue. Like she's kind of like, Oh, why are we going down this road? Like there could be people behind these trees. There could be, you know, like, why are we doing this right now? We should maybe just be chill. And when Barry calls her an idiot, like, she actually stands up for herself. She's like, I'm not stupid. I act like this so people will like me. She basically nails the teenage experience in two sentences. And then she defends Jenny. She's like, and you can see the wheels turn with Barry when she's like, yeah, Jenny, like, I know you think she's frumpy. Like, I've been in PE class with her. Like, she's got a slamming body under all that frumpy clothing and barry's like oh really like you could totally see like he's gonna hit on on jenny first chance oh
3: yeah and
1: and and i think it's interesting that with heather too that like you know she her character like also might represent like how in a film it's like you almost it's like because you know she is established to like you know have Mm -hmm. a clue and like you know and like kind of has these layers to her uh, but then like kind of, um, you know, that the, in a, you know, in a typical horror movie, it's like, well, we can't have two capable women in this movie. So it's like, okay, like we're going to present Heather as this, like, you know, character with her like thoughts and agency. And then in the second half literally just becomes a like, yeah. you know, punching butcher bag uh for yeah. the for the family i mean like you know not only she had all the torment from barry uh mental uh mentally emotionally to begin with but then like literally uh it's like she just becomes like oh well we gotta take her out of the equation like doesn't matter how uh you know smart she is or like you know like you know how much agency she truly has uh we can we can only have the one so it's like and now like they literally just like took her away and just like, you know, just like punish her for like the rest of it. I was like, I felt like bad for her. goddamn Yeah. I, I
3: love Heather. I love Heather for her own merits because of her saying, you know, Oh, I pretend to be dumb just so people will like mm-hmm. me. Like she's more self-aware than a lot of, you know, teenage characters in movies,
2: the sidekick character. Yeah.
3: But another thing I love about Heather, I think she is the cleverest character from a script standpoint because of all of the parallels between Heather and Pam in the original. Mm-hmm. Heather has dreams about being followed through the woods, Pam has a book of astrology. Like they're both the soothsayers mm. in this movie, predicting mm. what's going to happen to them. You know, P- um Pam's got that iconic shot where she's walking up to the Sawyer's house, we can see her back, you know, Heather's got that low back dress. She's got mm-hmm. a scene where her back is to Leatherface and he comes up from behind her and attacks her. You know, she's the one on the hook, just like Pam. She's in the freezer, just like Pam. She is a stand-in for Pam, but every single time, it's inverted just a little bit. It's Hinkle mm-hmm. playing with that original screenplay and turning Pam inside out with mm-hmm. this new, fresh character. I'm so fascinated with the parallels between those two characters, and I, think I love it's that. So smart.
2: Yeah, yeah, I like this character a lot. Like, she doesn't get a ton, unfortunately, um, and it's just like it's interesting. Like, she. Doesn't give up, but, like, she's put into such a state that she can't get away. Mm-hmm. Like, she can tell that, like, one of the best shots in the movie is, like, when she lifts her head up after she's been oh, bitten. Yeah. And then she puts it back in this, like, pool of blood. Because you can tell, like, she's got a concussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Yeah, Jenny's it's like, come on, come on, get creepy. up. And she's just mm-hmm. like, mm,
1: no, can't, can't mm-hmm. do it. And it's just like, oh, man. Like, it's okay. unnerving.
2: Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Jenny. It's been a long way. Let's talk about this character. So, um which ver did you both watch the director's or the theatrical cut?
0: Uh,
1: I watched
2: whichever one was on uh, Prime. Yeah, I watched okay. the
3: theatrical cut.
2: Okay. So the theatrical cut excludes probably the most important scene from the movie so when this movie starts it's like jenny putting on her makeup and then it immediately cuts to the prom right the theatric the director's cut as she's getting from the prom like it's heavily uh intimated and jessica you mentioned this like her stepfather is not only psychologically abusive and physically abusive he's sexually abusing her and you don't get any hint of that in the theatrical cut. Um, it is the cut that played, I think, in festivals as well as like it's the laser disc when mm-hmm. it was called Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And this scene undercuts, like not having that in there, it undercuts her whole arc because later on during the dinner scene, when Vilmer touches her, that's when she snaps. She goes from, like, being really meek and compliant and, like, what are you going to do to me? Do you want to kill me? To, like, she's like, fuck it, enough is enough. Like, she starts standing tall. She puts him in her place. Like She slaps him hard. And she's like, "Don't you ever fucking touch me again!" She's like, "This is bullshit. You're a psycho. You're not scary. You're just like a fucking psychotic." She's really fierce in that moment. And then when Leatherface just starts screaming, she's like, "You know what, dude? Shut the fuck up!" And he does. Like she, like just her whole character snaps into place. And that's the moment where like zeliger like wrestles the movie away from mcconaughey because mcconaughey like all of a sudden Vilmer is like far less interesting he's been cut down to size and everything else in this movie is building up jenny um i've got a quote here from this was from a site called halloween love it's uh john squires who like the editor-in-chief over at bloody disgusting like he had a old blog called halloween love and he had an email exchange with Henkel talking about this movie and Jess, do you mind kind of reading kind of like how Henkel conceptualized Jenny? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Overall, the movie is about the Jenny character. Henkel said it's her story. It's about her transformation, her refusal to shut up, to be silenced, to be victimized. And by extension, her refusal to be oppressed even by culture. Bringing Jenny into a world in which the culture was grotesquely exaggerated was a way of bringing her to see her own world more clearly. That is to say, my intent was to present a nightmarish version of Jenny's world in the form of the Chainsaw family in order to enlarge her view of her own world. She came from a dysfunctional family. The Chainsaw family is spectacularly dysfunctional, a nightmarish blowup of Jenny's own dysfunctional family. Everybody tells Jenny to shut up. After she rejects her stepfather's advances, he threatens her with the consequences of speaking out. And again, when she calls Barry on his bullshit in the car, he tells her to shut up. Then the Chainsaw family, not only do they want her to shut up, but they want her to buy into their world, to accept their bizarre cultural norms, silly mythologies, and preposterous, apocryphal tales. But in the end, Jenny tells them, in essence, that they're full of shit and she's walking. Of course, it doesn't work out all that happily, at least not in the short term. But she does stand up to them, and it's the beginning of her salvation.
1: Yeah. What do we make of that? I mean, when you think about it, because honestly, like, again, like having binge, like the previous sequels, all of them have great final girls. Mm-hmm. Like all these final girls, you know, are survivors in their own way. Uh, they all kind of have these different reclamation points. Uh, they get, uh, again I can't remember her name in three But she was sassy as hell mm-hmm. uh, Which I really appreciated um, But when you think about it um, All th- in the first three Each final girl Even though they do survive um, They all survive in that kind of state Of like well they're also kind of Still not the same anymore Like they mm-hmm. are uh, A little piece of them is missing uh, You know I would say that's the case for um, the The first three I would say that Jenny is the first one that, you know, leaves, you know, herself. She leaves, you know, with everything like because she does take that power back. She's really Mm -hmm. the only one that, you know, takes the, uh, you know, turns the tables and uh, takes the the fear away from them. Like because, again, like in the at the end of the day. Um, that is always kind of the family's whole thing that like, yeah, they are opportunistic in the way that they, um, you know, with the whole cannibalism thing, but once they do have, you know, their, their people, they, they play with their food and like, you know, and they, they do relish in the, the fear that they ignite in people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so Jenny not only survives, but also takes that fear away. And, you know, yeah. so like, really, uh, she's the only final girl to not only survive, but like win. It's the first one where you think she's going to be okay after.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: You're, what do you think, Jess?
3: Well, I I know that there is a sizable contingent of horror fans who are tired of the monster being trauma. Like they're tired of, mm-hmm. you know, the final girl fighting back against her trauma. But I I'm not tired of that. I love that. Mm-hmm. I find that so cathartic and so empowering and so much fun to watch and i love that the story is not you know sally in the original blank slate we don't know, don't know a lot about her mm-hmm. or who she is or what her life is like we see her go through this ordeal but we don't know what happened to her before then i love seeing Jenny And knowing what she's gone through, even the version I watched, you you get hints of what she has gone through in her life and all the things she's had to deal with Mm -hmm. and being able to go through this on a bigger, weirder scale and come out on the other side, feeling stronger and more in control of her own life that really speaks to me i think that's another reason i love this movie so much so i know that there are some people who are like oh trauma oh my god not again but i love that i love stories like that so i Mm -hmm. really respond to jenny and just how tough she is and how much she fights back
1: they like it they did her trauma a different way because you know with uh with sally or stretch or you know it's like their their trauma is you know like what they went through and like mm-hmm. you know and it is kind of a more literal take on it versus this yeah. one it's like Jenny already has her own trauma that she's dealing with she doesn't got, have time to fucking deal with these maniac <laughs> uh family and just being like no i you know i'm already dealing with my own shit like i can get past you guys mm-hmm. you know because like what i'm dealing with is even worse and like yeah that mm-hmm. really does like speak to the the strength of her character yeah yeah i I like the way that her backstory is
2: presented, like in the director's cut, like you get that scene, and it's not overdone, and they don't return to it again and again. Uh, But you see how she deals with it, like she calls Barry on his bullshit, like, she's not this like super meek character. She's somebody that is like, if I see something that's bullshit, I'm going to call them on it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and just be a punching bag and take it. Mm-hmm. Um And I think that when she, when like Vilmer like grabs her and it kind of like triggers, like men have been doing this to me my whole life. Like it's implied that her stepfather is not the first. Like mm-hmm. Vilmer is just like the latest in a long line of like stepdaddies that is like basically dehumanized her. She's like, you know what? Fuck mm-hmm. this. Enough is enough. Like I've had to deal with this every night for like how many years now and this is this is you're gonna be the one that's gonna take my face away from me like fuck no um and she's so self-assured when she does it like i really kind of love that about her and also like
1: renee zellweger like can haul ass
2: like yeah. Oh
0: great form
1: uh, mm-hmm. like that that's what I know it's like her like the way that mm-hmm. she ran like there's a shot and like it's her like and she runs into frame I mean like the way like she like mm-hmm. straight up has just great form yeah. she is strident she is moving like one yeah. of what maybe one of the fastest final girls oh yeah uh, that I've seen I mean because don't get me wrong Sally had the cardio uh, in the first one, but mm-hmm. but she she was like flopping all over the place, and she's yeah. gangling and stuff, and like, nah, uh, Jenny is like she's running. Yeah, she's a track star. You you watch that first movie, and you're like.
2: Dude, like Leatherface is gonna pass Sally at certain points. Like, Gunner Hansen talks gonna, about like he's he gonna lap to her for and, fun. Yeah, he like had to stop and cut down branches because he's like, I'm gonna catch up to her. And, like, there was a take when like she couldn't get on the truck, so he like literally just like pushes her on the truck to like gives her a boosty. Like here, ten fingers, let's go. it's um, so, like Sally is not you know, no, she just ain't ain't that strong of a runner, but like. Jess jenny is like hauling ass like she was a fucking track star you know so going who am i like i myself cannot run to save my life like it would be like i would get about 20 feet and be like fuck it i'm done all right <laughs> she, you got me
1: she can run and and she did one of my favorite uh final girl signature moves jumped out the window and uh mm-hmm. any anyone that's willing to jump out the window yep. is uh aok in my book so yeah, yeah she she's up there for me
3: and she's like climbing on a clothesline and climbing on a oh like a satellite God, yes. she's Like she's a spider monkey up in the air on all yes. these things she's trying to she mm-hmm. was doing what she needed to do to get away
2: yeah
1: i forgot about the power line and mm-hmm. then when she like fell too she took that fall like a champ mm-hmm. like that was a good like mm-hmm. 25 foot fall yeah <laughs> yeah, she's hauling ass. And I, I feel
2: like this is one of the final girls that doesn't get enough love. Mm-hmm. Like, And again, this movie, is it's criminally underseen. Like it is the least, it's the lowest grossing of any of the series. It barely comes out in theaters. And I think like a lot of people probably didn't even know this movie existed. So it's like, this is a character that, you know, like Patricia Arquette in The elm street three is like still like a beloved final girl like she's one of those like all right she would go on to obviously much bigger and better things in her career but she but also no does one, like
1: nothing in that movie
2: right well she pulls people in I mean, she does you know she does she's controlling the dreams she almost gets eaten by Freddy worm you yeah. know she does some shit you know yeah. she says i'll remember you every night in my drought tr- dream about you every night nancy
1: no, uh, like, I mean, Jenny, Jenny for me is like in this, uh, yeah, like I, I like mm-hmm. I, I was actually like very pleasantly surprised. Like I thought, uh, I, cause again, I like, I wasn't sure at what capacity Renee Zellweger was in the mm-hmm. film. Like I wasn't sure if she played the, the supportive friend mm-hmm. or not. And I, you know, didn't realize that she was like, you know, the true final girl of the film. And, yeah. um, you know, like, I mean, I was just very shocked with, you know, with how physical, physically capable she was strong willed. All, all and, well high all all oh, while, while fucking stoner. blazing you know and, and she's a stoner so i mean she's in that she's in that underappreciated uh tear mm-hmm. with uh Kirsty cotton for me okay. right now I'll, Of like you know they, these girls need some love all right i'm gonna ask
2: you something um devon because the i've only done gummies twice like that is the extent of the my drug use in 47 years okay um i just it's just not for me don't care people do it, but you being the resident blazer of the crew, like, all right, you being like, you mm-hmm. know, you have the bloody blunt cinema club. Mm-hmm. Can people run fast when stoned? I just don't see it. I mean, I did, would
1: feel that would. I mean it. Uh, it, it all depends. Um, I mean, me, I I'm I do all my physical things still while I'm stoned because mm-hmm. like uh, I don't I don't smoke a ton of like blunts and joints. I'm mainly like a bong mm-hmm. person, so it's like it's okay. pretty easy on my lungs. Um, and then, I mean, as far as like, you know, doing edibles and stuff, I mean, I load up on edibles, like before mm-hmm. I go roller skating almost every time. I mean, that's like, I feel that, like I would die. That's I like burning die. a shit ton of calories uh-huh. needs a lot of coordination. Going mm-hmm. by, and like, I mean, so I mean, I, me personally, like, yeah, like stone. Could I still, could I still haul ass like that? Like, oh yeah, for sure. Okay.
2: The, like the first time I did an edible, it was at the Telluride horror show when it was like doing my hosting duties. And there was like the screening of never hike alone, the mm, Friday fan yeah. film. And it kicked in about 10 minutes into that movie. And I just giggled for like the next three hours. Like, I don't know if I could have run.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm physically active. I'm a I'm a I'm, okay. a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an active stoner.
2: Okay. So I was just curious. I just didn't know if that, how that would affect her cardiovascular. Endurance, But these are the questions we ask. Here's my hot take on final girls that will get people to hate me. Nancy is like one of the most boring final girls in horror movie history. She's a scold, like she's a wicked scold. She's like, when people think mm-hmm. of like the virginal anti sex final girl, like they're thinking of Nancy like she is yeah now heather in new nightmare in that fucking blue dress like that's a different story like she can <laughs> get it but oh. like nancy herself like alice is the best final girl in the elm street series by a factor of like 5 i'll take her mm, over nancy
1: interesting day. i don't know i mean see for me that's that's me with lori um and, mm-hmm. and that and i guess that's me uh the and the thing is with You know, Lori gets a lot of credit. And I mean, Nancy gets a little bit more credit too, Mm -hmm. to a degree, is because you're able to like take their character into account with multiple films. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, of course, like, you know, people. Uh, don't talk about the the final girl such as Mm -hmm. sally or or kirstie who only get one or two movies versus someone that's getting three four uh you know uh, sydney gets five movies so of course these are ones that get talked about a lot more because you're able to kind of look at that that character a little bit more rounded because i think nancy in if even if you just looked at the first elm street she's a pretty she's a pretty capable final girl like you know she's she's you know picking up on clues on how to figure out you know the the freddie lore and everything and but she's um, so judgmental like she's she is but then the jigsaw she home alones she home alones freddie krueger i mean any any final girl that home alones the the killer is uh gets points in my book but like but see but that's that's me and for Lori, if you like if you only looked at the very first film she really does nothing. She's just a lot of things ah. happening to her versus she gets more development in the later films. Like Lori sure. is like
2: blazing with Annie in the car wow, and she's like, true. Ben Tramer can get it. You know, she's yeah, like, she I doesn't. let Ben Tramer trick my treat. You know, I mean, yeah, she's a stoner so. too,
1: but I'm talking just as far as like active doing final girl shit in that first film. She's not I doing know, too much. She gets a lot of credit because she does a lot more in other she films. She's stabbing dudes in the eye and, like, breaking windows, you know?
2: I don't know, man. She's pretty Oh, a lucky shot aware. with a hanger. Oh. Get out of here. You know? Yeah. Jessica, I don't want to exclude you. What is your final girl take that will get you tossed out of the horror community?
3: God, I don't have... Y'all have some hot, spicy takes, and I'm, I am, I'm trying to think of something I have that's equivalent. Um, right. Uh, I, my final take. I mean my final girl opinions are boring like I want more Helen Shivers I I like her more than Julie you know mm-hmm. I Aaron from Your Next is one of my favorite final girls mine are not controversial I'll I'll will have to think and get back to you and tweet about it Give me
2: a controversial take then give me like we keep threatening to do a Final Girls episode on psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and I'm going to be like I'm just going to talk about Charlie Brewster and and um fucking Tommy Jarvis like <laughs> as the best Final Girls and piss everybody <laughs> Off. Friday the thirteenth
1: um, does have more male final girls than, it does, than, it does. Than, than female final girls. That it does. It also has
2: the most final girls that fuck. Annie <laughs> is down to fuck. Like she her and Steve Christie. Like she's, you know, like she is going for the mustache ride with Steve Christie is my take. And she's doing strip Monopoly. Mm-hmm. You know, like she's down. Like Jenny, you know that Jenny is good to go.
1: Oh, you're talking. You, know? you want to talk final girls that fuck. Uh, Jessica mm-hmm. came on for uh, when on on an episode. Whenever we spent a month talking mm-hmm. about the slumber party massacre gals, mm. many of those gals oh, yes. uh, in throughout the series fuck yeah uh, I think a lot I, of that. I would
3: say all of those girls fuck
1: no yeah they they are all very sex positive mm-hmm. and uh it, which is they are fantastic. Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe we'll do that as a bonus show if we don't get our act together in psychoanalysis because we keep putting it off. So we'll do like as a bonus show, final girls that fuck you know
1: like we'll dispel the whole myth of the A final girl tier list would be a lot of fun. I yeah and that could that definitely, definitely be, be. criteria. Uh, uh, so fu- fucking is I- definitely criteria. Yeah.
2: So at the top again, you have Tommy Jarvis and Charlie Brewster <laughs> getting it done. I kid. Charlie. I kid. Charlie Brewster's awesome. I fucking love that movie. Oh, we'll do the four Fright Night movies one day. All right. So we'll move on. I'm sorry to derail things here. We're almost at the end, people. Um, Renee Zellweger. She looks back like on this movie kind of fondly at this point. Like I have a little quote here from movie web where she's like talking about what it was like making this and she's like best workout ever yep live chainsaw that's a motivation to get running run fast it was very low budget so we shared a tiny winnebago that the producer of the film it belonged to him was his personal camper so you know makeup was in the front seats and there's a little table in the middle for hair and there was a tiny little curtain by the bathroom that's where you put on your prom dress and your flower And friends, friends for life. McConaughey, Robert Jacks, who played Leatherface. He's passed now, but he was one of my favorites. It was ridiculous how he pulled that off. I have no idea. I'm not. I'm sure none of it was legal. Anything we did was a little bit dangerous, but what an experience! It was kamikaze filmmaking, and I love that. I love that you have this like Oscar-winning. She's like looking back really fondly on a role that like no one really talks about oh yeah
1: it sounds like you know she had like you know every every actor kind of wants one of those uh filmmaking Mm -hmm. experiences like you said like when it feels a little dangerous and everything's fast but like dangerous in the fun way you know Mm -hmm. um which it sounds uh like it was so yeah Mm -hmm. i I do love that response here's the last thing i have
2: the prom scene what is going on with the friend who is like, oh, she's doing it again, you know, she's stirring up trouble, and she's doing some sort of interpretive dance, and she kind of sounds like she's, like, doing a Woody Allen impersonation, but if, like, Woody Allen had been put in, like, a human blender for, like, a couple minutes and then was told to talk, like, what is going on with this character? Like, (laughs) I want her story.
1: I have no idea. This is your, uh, I'm going steal your date okay right here. Uh, mm-hmm. not, that's my only answer.
3: I want more from the guy who's like, I fucking hate kids. I, oh, yeah. I want that a movie dude, about that yeah. guy.
1: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. It's like a, the beginning of this movie is like a Linkwater movie. Like you get that Austin kind of loosey-goosey. Like it has that kind of like we're just going to follow these people around. Like the girl that Barry cheats with, she's like, she'll come back to you if that's what you want. You know? And I love that. I love that. She's like, I could take you or leave you, dude. You mean nothing. It's like, it's like, uh, Darla and W.E.
1: Like you mean nothing to me type of move right there. Oh, and, and I'll say with, uh, the prom scene at the beginning, um, the most creative use of the, uh, the, the light flashing sound, uh, mm-hmm. the iconic use of, uh, for prom photos, I think is the, yeah. is the best use of it in the entire franchise. Yeah, that was, yeah, kiss. that was, that was, was a great I was so yeah. happy. Yes,
2: it was great. Oh,
1: folks, I think we got it. I think we did I like this. So. Movie, I think we this, got this, it. This movie it, it kind of rules a little bit. Like mm-hmm. it, it, like it, it does definitely have a lot of issues and yeah, weird and weird choices and questions. But like, I don't know. Like again, like but like I honestly don't see it as like a uh, large change in quality versus yep. like many of the other sequels yeah. in the franchise. For real, yeah.
2: Watching it like four times in the past week, maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, (laughs) but like I've come around on it where I really enjoy it. And I think like it's maybe the one I would put on at a Halloween party in the background, because I think people that aren't massive horror fans might see it and be like, wait, is that? Matthew McConaughey like what is he doing in the, you know what I mean like <laughs> he's doing and it's everything just, <laughs> that's what he's doing and it's he's doing it all and it's not super gory where you would like turn your friends off that aren't necessarily you know, the only the ones that turn up for spooky season and that's it
1: so any final thoughts yeah, no, I, uh, it, it definitely, um, defied my expectations for sure. Um, I, I will say that the lack of violence, even though like, yes, this is like kind of like it gets like kind of comedic at points and like, gets a, like, it gets a little unsettling and it's like unsettling and like some of the like violent moments. Like there was mm-hmm. a moment where Jenny, like where W.E. beats the shit out of her with a uh, electric yes. poker, like geez, um, but but um aside from like that scene and then like i guess Vilmer like throwing Darla around but you know but then but then we see a couple scenes later that she probably liked it so like this movie mm-hmm. doesn't really have too much um you know as far as like in the unsettling uh, nature of it it's a uh, it, you know like uh, even even the, you know, just, like, screaming that, like, you know, the sound design usually is, like, supposed to, like, put you on edge. And, like, even in this one, just, like, kind of, uh, I would feel like Jenny. I would just be more annoyed than anything. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe I do kind of wish this still had a little more, um, you know, horror elements, you know. Like, mm-hmm. even as goofy, like, you know, even, like, you know, like the over-the-topness of 2 um, mm-hmm. still has some very horrific stuff in it. Uh, you know, so it's yeah, like the it, skinning it, it, scene, yeah, yeah. So it's like it, it can be done, you know. Still, so I, I, I still wish uh, there was a little, uh, a couple more true horror scenes in this, a little more, mm-hmm. a little more action. But um, but but I, I enjoyed it for my for my first yeah. watch, and it's uh, it's more than uh, the reputation that uh, it's earned for sure. Yeah. So Jessica, you're the you're the one that said again
2: better than the original, um, you know the Citizen Kane of the yeah. slasher yes. France. No, so what any final thoughts?
3: No, just I really love this movie. I am so glad we got to talk about it, and I'm glad you came around on it a little bit because I I mm-hmm. think it's smarter and cleverer and better than it gets credit for. Um, I yeah. really like how far it leans into Leatherface um exploring his her their gender um Mm -hmm. with makeup and the wigs and the dresses and um leaning more into that from the original um i i i just really want people to revisit this one with an open mind because i love this movie and i i think it's really really good and doesn't get enough credit
2: Agreed. Yeah, I I sometimes find the movies that, like, I will come into them not, like, the hottest on, that they are sometimes make for the most fun discussions, and I really, really enjoy talking about this one. Like, this episode has been an absolute hoot to record. Um, So on that note, Devon... What is going on? What do you have coming up with the Bloody Blunts Cinema Club? And where can listeners kind of follow along and find your work?
1: Yeah, right now we are in the midst of uh, covering the Predator franchise. Of course, you know, Prey just dropped. And uh, so it's super excited uh, to like kind of go back through these. And I uh, did already see Prey a few few days ago. Uh quite enjoyed it. Watch the Comanche version. If uh, you're going to watch it, I do recommend mm-hmm. it. And um and uh, yeah, so we're going through that right now, and then we're also going to go through uh, some Stephen King adaptations next month, and then uh, the Reanimator franchise as well. Yep. So we got some exciting stuff uh, coming up on hundred episodes. So uh, please <laughs> go, congrats. Uh, please go give us a follow. We drop new episodes every Tuesday. Uh, our Twitter and Instagram is at Bloody Blunts Pod, and then you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at mm-hmm. underscore Daddy Disco. Just uh you know talking my movie stuff. Got it. And then Jessica,
2: looks like you get a bounce there in a minute. So, what uh, what do you have coming up? What are you working on? And where can our listeners find you? Um,
3: you can find me on Twitter at we who walk here. Um, I publish on my website we here com on FilmCred on slash film. Um, where I get to explore things other than horror, which is fun. Um, also dread central. I, um, have a column coming up there and maybe a piece on Texas chainsaw massacre, the next generation. So stay tuned. Excellent. for that.
2: <laughs> excellent. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. So I think I'm going to pitch them. My, this isn't the original Leatherface" mm, yes, column and see if they'll run with it. Um, so we, who walk here, that's your site. That's where we can follow you on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, you know who I am at this point, hopefully. Um, listeners can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian, uh, and you can hear my musings on horror movies and psychology over on Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast. Uh, that is where we talk about our love of mental health and how it is applied in horror films with uh jen and lara in august our topic is toxic fandom uh we're looking at the causes of toxic fandom and the ways that it rears its ugly head our first topic on the subject um just dropped uh, where we explored the movie misery and that was like a really fun episode to record um listeners if you like what we do please take a moment Subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcast. If you can go one step further, like please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're five reviews away from 100, and I would love to get there this month. So please go over there. Leave us a five-star review. Put a few words in there for us that are kind. Uh, if you can take two minutes and do that, it's a huge help. It helps listeners find us. Um, we've been getting a nice little boost since we've started this series. Uh, it's been great. So we want to kind of continue that upward trend. Like I do very little marketing and promotion at this point. Like we're pretty much all word of mouth. So the fact that like more people are finding us and discovering the show and listening and enjoying us is like really satisfying. So, that is our episode on Texas Chainsaw Massacre the Next Generation. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, to me it was certainly one of the more entertaining movies to talk about. Kind of points out to what I feel like is the strength of this franchise, like it's not as like easy to digest as a Friday the 13th. It's not doesn't have like your singular heroes like a dr loomis or a laurie strode Um, and it's not as consistent from top to bottom as elm street is but you can never say these movies are boring every entry has some weird shit going on you know yeah every entry there's weird shit going on that makes it fascinating to break down so we're hoping you enjoy listening to these as much as we're enjoying putting them out next time out we're going to talk about what is sneakily One of the most important horror movies of the past 20 years with 2003's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. It's the movie that kickstarted the reboot craze that dominated theatrical horror for almost a decade. It embraced the mood of the country at the time and that it was like really fucking dark. Uh, And the remake leans so much into that. So it's going to be fascinating to talk about and we'll see you back here when we do. Take care, y'all.